I love Mississippi. They, they hate Mississippi. They hate us because we present a shining example of successful segregation. How do you think the Negroes have been treated here in Mississippi? They're treated about fair, about as good as they ought to be. If you ask me, the Negroes around here have been treated off bad for a long time. Again, I think Martin Luther King's one of the leaders. I mean, J. Edgar Hoover said that he was a communist, and uh, they had uh, proof to that effect. But, uh, you know, I don't know that for sure. I hadn't seen it myself, but that's what they say. They say we've got to eat together and use the same bathroom as the new. And that's awful hard for some Mississippi folks to do. They're not like us. They don't take baths. They stink. They, they're nasty. They, they just not like white folks. What do you think has happened to the three boys? They just as dead as they can be. Tell you what I think they ought to be doing. They ought to be looking up there in Canada for them boys instead of our swamps around here. I'll tell you something else, too. I think it's a publicity stunt dreamed up by these NAAC people. NAACP? Yeah, NAACP. I bet you all don't even know what it stands for. Test the niggas, alligators, apes, coons, and possums. Tell you what you got. You got your NAACP, you got your SNCC, you got your COFO, and you know what all that mess is? B-U-L-L-S-H-I-T. You got it? Eyes of the world focused on Mississippi. In Neshoba County, Deputy Price and Sheriff Lawrence Rainey rebuffed the press. They felt the disappearance of the three civil rights workers didn't merit the attention it was receiving. And still the search continued. Four hundred sailors from Meridian Naval Air Station were pressed into duty, working in rotating shifts. Woods were scouted, rivers were dragged. Then the FBI received word that a body of a black man had been pulled from the Mississippi River near Vicksburg. they went to investigate. Though Vicksburg was 140 miles away, it was possible that Cheney's body may have floated downriver. It was the only lead in an otherwise dismal search. We discovered that he was that this body was not that of one of the missing civil rights workers. It was determined that he was the victim of a, of a Klan lynching. It wouldn't be the only false alarm that summer as other lynching victims surfaced. Some had gone unreported because in some areas, the Klan was the law. 
Charles Moore and his friend Henry D. were victims, allegedly beat to near death by James Ford Seal and a friend. Still alive, they were dumped in the Mississippi River. We learned that this boy whose body we found yesterday and which has tentatively been identified as Charles Edward Moore. Seal had been thought to be dead, but in 2005, the brother of one of the victims and a Canadian filmmaker discovered he was very much alive. Now 71, Seal, a former police officer, is facing charges in connection with these murders. Context of white supremacy. No statute of limitations on murder. Gusty Renegade in for another broadcast, hopefully to share constructive information on the system of white supremacy. Today's date, Monday, July 25, 2022. So I have been told. The let's see before I even get to the audio, man. Oh, man. You heard the audio talking about some of the sections from the Civil Rights Movement, Freedom Summer, 1964. <laughs> we had a listener who I guess was trying to give our, our guest a heads up uh, about Gus T and his slippery questions. Give him a warning. Said they could have said, hey, the folks that you are going to talk to today about your book and the Civil Rights Movement. Charles E. Cobb has been a guest on their program. Talked about his book, That Nonviolent Stuff Will Get You Killed, member of SNCC. Michael Fellwell was with us 2013. We talked about his really important report, Castrated Giant, the March 28th March on Washington. He was with us during the whole 50-year anniversary uh, of the March on Washington in 2013. Uh, Dick Gregory, who even gets a brief mention in the book we'll discuss today, two-time guest on the cows who hates our guts, incidentally, or at least he did before he uh, transitioned. Uh, in fact, I mean, if you really want to go detail, like, hey, Gus T said he has a history degree. Part of that is, didn't he study under Julian Bond? Yep. Could have said all of that, but they did not. Worthless Negro from Virginia. All of that said, one thing that I will say, one of the more important points that I took from our text today, strive for accuracy. Been saying that for years here at the Cows, and I've said frequently, that alone will keep you busy on many days just be accurate accurate spelling names dates as accurate as you can especially people you have a history degree like man accurate if we're going to talk about names and pull all up put all of that to it then we can say it at the very beginning charles eddie moore henry hezekiah d herbert orsby we'll get all of those names again but Names are important. This comes up so many times on the cows for so many reasons. That said, the audio that we heard at the very beginning, uh, maybe from one of my favorite movies, although for wrong reasons, but easily one of my favorite movies. It's sound clipped on the cows all the time. Mississippi Burning, even though that film is a dangerous lie, it is one of my favorite films sound clipped talking about the murders that took place in the summer of 1964 that drew so much attention mostly because these were young white men 
who were killed. They've been killing black people like Charles Moore, Henry D., all the time. Even Medgar Evers mentioned at the beginning of the program. But white boys, oh my goodness. The book that we will discuss today, Black Freedom, excuse me, looked at the wrong part of the title, Black Bodies in the River, Searching for Freedom Summer, discussing the events in 1964. And I guess if I would pick out the two major points, in fact, I'll read the summation right now. I thought this was kind of great summation of the text. The author writes, why do Goodman, Schwerner, and Cheney still need to dominate the story? The names Charles Moore, Henry D., Herbert Oresby distract us from the truth of the matter. White lives were the only ones that really mattered in 1964 and today. More than 50 years later, the three civil rights workers' lives still matter more in our collective memory and our historiography. Yes, white lives mattered fundamentally to Bob Moses' mission of bringing the country to Mississippi in 1964. That mission was successful in ways that likely horrified him that no doubt rested heavy. Skipping a little bit, what ought to rest heavy with the sons and daughters, the grandsons and granddaughters of Freedom Summer is the too easy cliche, the facile facts that everybody already knows the too obvious conclusion that white Mississippians enforced their murderous white supremacy on generations of black bodies. Yes, we hear the tortured incredulity of Dennis's father. What are these bodies doing in the river? And the story that each body might tell. By refusing to tell those stories, by simply repeating the number, five, eight, a dozen, or bodies too numerous to count, we tacitly acknowledge that yes, nameless black bodies, then and now, are disposable. May that rest heavy too. Names are important. In fact, details, talk about that all the time, details are important and again strive for accuracy the author of black bodies in the river the Fannie Lou Hamer professor of rhetorical studies at Florida State University in Tallahassee uh, his research interests include rhetorical criticism presidential rhetoric the black freedom movement historiography and archival research uh, he was born and raised in Mansfield, Ohio, which is an interesting chunk of the U.S. Uh, thankful to have him on the program to talk about his brand new book. I mean, like days old, brand new. Uh, joining us live, Dr. Davis Hauk. Uh, Dr. Hauk, are you with us, sir? Hi there. Greetings. Thank you so can much. Can you hear me? Yes, sir. We can hear you. Can you hear us okay? I hear you great. Thanks, Gus. Awesome. Uh, thank you so much for sharing a bit of your, uh, or I guess, yeah, Monday, some summer evening uh, for listeners. This might be their first time uh, hearing about you and your book. Uh, any brief information you would like to give us before we get started, sir? Well, uh, it's a it's a pleasure to be able to join you tonight. Uh, as your as your listeners probably know, today's a really important day in our own civil rights history. Today's the 81st birthday of Emmett Till. 
And uh, my good friend and filmmaker and colleague and collaborator, Keith Beauchamp and his team uh, just released their trailer for their upcoming Till movie, which will be in theaters in uh, October. So, uh, and we also, I realized today that uh, a year ago today, we lost Bob Moses, who plays such an important role in my projects. Wow. Dates are important. That is grand. How about that? Whole, uh, what have we done for 13 years? Most of the time, I just say stand by your work. Keith Beauchamp, two-time guest on The Cows. Talked about his films. Yes, nice. lots of work on Emmett Lewis Till. Absolutely. Uh, let's see, for mm-hmm. folks who have not seen you, uh, Dr. Hauk, am I saying your name accurately? Is that it, Dr. Hauk? Am I saying it correctly? You got it. Yes, awesome. you did. Thank awesome. you. Got it. Uh, Dr. Hauk, you are a white man. Is that accurate? Awesome. Uh, for this program, certainly for the content that we're talking about, I always start out with uh, definition for racism, white supremacy. Uh, I use those two terms, racism, white supremacy, as synonyms. Same definition for each mm-hmm. term. Uh, the definition I use is as follows. A global system of people who classify themselves as white and are dedicated to abusing and or subjugating everyone in the known universe whom they classify as not white. Do you think such a system exists? Do you think that definition is accurate? Yes and yes. Wow, precise. Love it. Uh, Let's see. Uh, Do you system of white supremacy exists you are a white man do you think it's logical given the evidence certainly what you've researched do you think it's logical for any non-white person to be suspicious of anyone who is classified as white even you as long as the system of white supremacy exists I do short to the point love it uh, let's see. Before we, oh my goodness, I was so excited, man! Oh man, I looked at your faculty profile. In fact, I looked at your faculty profile. I read the twenty questions uh, and what have you. I looked uh-huh. at some of your other books. We're black bodies in the river for sure. The effects of rhetoric and the rhetoric mm-hmm. of effects, past, present, future. What in the world? And Again, we're talking to someone who this is your area of research, rhetorical studies uh, and presidential rhetoric, even rhetorical criticism. I said, my goodness, let's start out with with the basics. So when you use the term rhetoric for our listeners, if you were explaining it to us, we've never heard this term before. What exactly you study? What is rhetoric, Dr. Howe? Sure, Gus, I appreciate you asking that question because most people think of rhetoric as, oh, that's just somebody trying to get over on an audience or somebody just BSing his way or her way through something. And rhetoric has a long, long history. It takes us all the way back into ancient Greece. And the study of rhetoric started with um, persuasive speech making. And uh, my field, which began as the speech communication field in the early 20th century, was a discipline that taught the skill of public speaking. The other thing we taught uh, early in the 20th century was great speeches. And so if you were going to take a class at Florida State University in the early 20th century and you were going to take a rhetoric class, 
there's a good chance you would just be taking a public speaking course. Um, if you were going to take a rhetorical criticism class, what you'd be doing is you'd probably be analyzing a great speech, maybe let's say Lincoln's Gettysburg Address, and you would be understanding that speech for its historical context, its delivery, its style, the use of metaphor, the organization of that speech. And so my discipline begins with public speaking. And what's happened over the last 100 years, and I'm going to do a real quick comic book version of what I do, is we've taken uh, rhetoric as a discipline and we moved it to, we don't study just speeches anymore. We study other non-oratorical things like film, uh, television, uh, journalism. And what we're doing is we're trying to figure out uh, how do these messages have persuasive designs on listeners? How do they attempt to do their work? How do they attempt to persuade? And we have messages around us all day, every day. Uh, whether it's your radio show right now or whether it's the TV news that I watched at 6 and 6.30, you know, these are messages that are coming at us all the time. And so as a rhetorical critic, I pick and choose what messages I'm interested in. And I've been interested in the civil rights movement for almost 20 years now. It began as an interest in the great orators, uh, Dr. King and Malcolm X, excuse me, and Fannie Lou Hamer. And then it evolved from there. Uh, it evolved into looking at some of the journalism surrounding the, the murder of Emmett Till and uh, continues to evolve. But that in kind of a nutshell, and I hope that's helpful for you and your listeners, uh, is kind of what I do for a living. Wow. I am totally stunned. Um, wow. <laughs> I really, I feel like we read the wrong book. Wow. Uh, for anyone who's listened to the cows and the amount of emphasis that we put on words and how critical words are to the maintenance practice of racism, white supremacy, and trying to undo that process. Oh my gosh. Mm. In your, in your field, Dr. Hauk, like in terms of your colleagues and professors that you had in route uh, to becoming a doctor and teaching all of this, how many of the, the folks talking demographics in your field are classified as black? Probably um, less than 10%. Um, I'm thinking just in my home department at Florida State University, I have um, three African-American women colleagues. And, uh, and that's out of about 27 so that's a little over 10%, which uh, is a little bit unusual, frankly. Um, so, yeah, big time underrepresentation um, in my part of the world, for sure. Mm. We got a dose of black male privilege, I thought. You said you got three black males in your department, so it's a little overrepresented? Black women, no. Black, oh, no black women. Oh, I thought it was black male privilege. Oh, oh well. Uh, that's um, – I'm not surprised. Uh <laughs> Anyway, around, I'm not surprised, but wow, you said the use of metaphor. Did I hear that correctly when you were talking about context and, and your field and the study of rhetoric? You did, yes. Metaphor, we study metaphor. I mean, it's all metaphor falls under style. Style is one of the five canons of rhetoric. And if, if we want to get a little bit deeper in that subject, we can. But invention, arrangement, style, memory, and delivery, those are our five great canons that we look at traditionally. And, um, so, yeah, metaphor is part of what we're about, for sure. Looking at metaphor and what, what certain metaphors do and what they mean. Wow. Uh, oh my God. 
I mean, literally, Dr. Hauk, we talk about metaphors on this program every broadcast, <laughs> and we have done so for years uh, with an emphasis on talking about ways that metaphors transmit values mm. of white supremacy racism mm -hmm. like can you give me some some mm -hmm. and even do you see similar uh, analysis in your work um for sure i mean you can look at uh well you know dr king begins uh the i have a dream speech talk, talking about the uh the check and the bounce check uh malcolm x talking about the ballot or the bullet uh, Fannie Lou Hamer's always dropping religious imagery in her speech making. So, um, my job, and it, and it sounds like you've been doing this job for a whole lot longer than I have in some ways, doing, doing this analysis of metaphor. Uh, you've been doing rhetorical criticism. Um, people don't call it that, but paying close attention to language and, and the meaning of that language and what we think it's doing, what it's communicating about me, what it's trying to communicate with an audience. I mean, yeah, that's, that's, really important work and um that's what my discipline does hmm. have you come across uh like phrases when they invoke because uh, this metaphor is used nigger in the woodpile is that one that you've come across i have not yikes 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 that's uh it's many of them but i mean i spend all day black bodies in the river but man oh man i'm gonna have to check that out uh wow do your do do, do does this book the effects of rhetoric and the rhetoric of effects does that discuss racism or do you any of your other works discuss racism within all of this discussion of language uh certainly in the till book it does um in the rhetoric of effects book what i'm doing there gus is we're kind of doing kind of an autopsy of our discipline because my discipline began when we're studying uh, these speeches, these great speeches, one of the questions that uh, people wanted to know the answer to was, what did this speech do? That speaker before that audience, who was persuaded, who wasn't, why weren't they persuaded? Those are really hard questions to ask and answer, especially if those speeches are 100 years old. It's like, where do you go to find answers for that? And so my discipline has struggled for a really long time trying to figure out how we answer that question of what did that speech do? Hmm. Fascinating. Fascinating. Ben Tillman, his name just keeps ringing in my mind like that mm. is somebody mm. like let's the pitchfork Ben. Oh. Anywho, uh, Black could talk about language. And yeah, but I'm, I'm glad. No, I'm glad you brought Ben Tillman up because that, that whole generation of white supremacists, late 19th going early 20th century, Bilbo, Eastland, mm. uh, Vardaman, all those guys, all those guys need to be studied and examined and to see to what extent their language parallels what we hear today. Oh, oh. we read Pitchfork, we should get some of those other guys too, but we did read uh, Pitchfork, Ben Tillman and the Reconstruction of White Supremacy during the Dylan Roof shooting of 2015, which also mm. happened mm. to be during the very early stages of uh, our former president's run to the White House. It was amazing, the overlap between mm. what he said and what mm -hmm. is said 21st century. Mm -hmm. Absolutely amazing. Uh, and both from 21-year-old at the time, Dylan Storm Roof, and from mm -hmm. 
our eventual president. Absolutely staggering. Uh, let's yeah. see. Uh, but black bodies in the river, uh, before I get off track here. Let's see. Oh, it's not on track. It is super important. Language is and some of that will come up in the text. It is super, super, you heard some of it in the audio clip on <laughs> what was being said. It is super important. Yes, you did. Niggers, yeah. apes, alligators, coons, and possums. Let's see. Uh, I had to scroll down and got me all discombobulated with the language component. All right. Black bodies <laughs> in the river. Back on track. Uh, one, you can let us know if that is an accurate summation. The two paragraphs that I kind of cut and pasted together say, hey, I think that is a pretty good synopsis of what I think the main kind of emphasis points of this uh, book are. But what were you trying to accomplish with this here project, Black Bodies in the River, Searching for Freedom Summer? Yeah, I was I was trying to do two things, Gus. I was trying to, number one, get at the veracity of the statement. You know, were, were black bodies found during the search for Goodman, Schwerner, and Cheney? Uh, I first heard that claim uh, in a documentary. I was just watching the History Channel back in 2006. Uh, documentaries called Freedom Summer by Marco Williams. And... Uh, Dave Dennis, who's one of my heroes in the movement, comes on at about the 30-minute mark of that documentary and said, when we were searching for Goodman, Schwerner, and Cheney, we were finding other black bodies. And, and this kind of has my attention now because uh, it's Dave Dennis, and it's like, okay, so how many? And then they cut to a professor from uh, uh, Tufts University by the name of Gerald Gill, who I, I didn't know him. Uh, and he says that during the search that they found eight uh, other bodies, uh, unidentified black men. And I thought, my goodness, I study this for a living. I teach this stuff for a living, and I've never heard this claim. Um, why don't I know about that? And more importantly, uh, who in the world were these men? And where were their bodies found? I, I need to know their stories. And then the second set of questions were more rhetoric questions. So that's more of a history question. The rhetoric question was, what is the, what is the function of people repeating this claim? Because it wasn't just Professor Gill who was making this claim. It was a lot of people. It was movement veterans. It was filmmakers. It was journalists. I just I just started kind of Googling bodies in the river in 1964, and wow, did the claims proliferate. And so I just start. So I just started first trying to get lay of the land here. It's like, okay, who who are, who's making these claims? And uh, I wanted to know again, just basic history fact question: who who were these who were these people? Uh, and why don't we know their stories? It's forty some years later. Why don't we know their stories? This is, so it was kind of a shot across my bow when somebody kind of comes at me in a documentary, and I took it kind of personally. It's like. There were there were eight of these people, eight of these young black men, presumably, who died uh, sometime in 1964, and we don't know their stories. Um, oh, I need to go do my homework. So I better I better go dig in. I better get back in the archives. I better go talk to my activist friends. I better go talk to my movement friends. I better go talk to my friend Keith Pochamp. I better go talk to. So that's where the that's where the project begins. Is is really that question of. Who, who, who are these unidentified black bodies? Context of white supremacy. Again, our guest, 
Dr. Hauk, Black Bodies in the River, just published minutes ago. Um, super important and kind of getting, and that's why I said accuracy, not being sloppy, even as I got into your book. I'm gonna, my next question is going to be if you could tell us a bit about Black World War II veteran Lewis Allen, who you start the book with, but I didn't know Lewis Allen. I didn't know, make sure I get all the names in. I didn't know uh, Charles Moore. I didn't know Henry mm-hmm. D. Mm-hmm. Herbert Oresby. Mm-hmm. I did know that name, mm-hmm. but I forgot, which mm-hmm. happens to all of us. But I just, I remember the narrative that everybody or that many people hear. Oh, wasn't there a body in a core t-shirt of a young teenager who was found in the same time period? Yeah. It's like, yeah. there is, as you said, a narrative. Like if you could, I mean, and it's almost 2025. I mean, you could just whip out your phone and Bang, you could find lots of information right there. Like, oh, Herbert, and his name spelled correctly, O-R-S-B-Y. <laughs> it would not take a whole right. lot of time to get some of these names. And, I mean, if we really talk about these folks matter and what have you, like, not just unnamed bodies, put a name on it and then maybe even yep. learn. As I said, now, I did not know at all black World War II veteran Lewis Allen. Who was he? Lewis Allen uh, was a logger. He was also a member of the NAACP. He was a landowner and a farmer. He lives in this little town, uh, Liberty, Mississippi, down in the um, southwestern part of Mississippi. And um, he had the unfortunate event in his life on September, let's see if I can get the date right here, September 25th, 1961, Bob Moses and Snick had been in that part of Mississippi for two months, and one of the people driving Bob Moses around southwestern Mississippi was a gentleman by the name of Herbert Lee. And Herbert Lee was a a husband, father to nine children, and he believed very fervently in what Bob Moses and SNCC were doing, which was bringing uh, voter education to that part of the state. And uh, one morning, Herbert Lee is at the local gin in Liberty, and his neighbor, who also happened to be a state representative by the name of E.H. Hurst, hated what his neighbor was doing, confronted him, about what he was doing, told him to quit. And Herbert Lee, I don't think back down. Uh, I don't know that he also knew that his life was in mortal danger at this time because E.H. Hurst shot him point blank, killed him at this gym. And there's several witnesses. And one of the witnesses walking by when this happened is Lewis Allen. So Lewis Allen sees the whole thing and he knows exactly what happened. And he knows his friend Herbert Lee has just been executed by this uh, representative in the state of Mississippi, just witnessed it. Um, He also knows, because he knows law enforcement, that if he goes to law enforcement and tells the truth, that his his own life is now going to be in danger. Because the sheriff, Daniel Jones, is uh, has broken his jaw previously, uh, has done everything to make his life miserable. And he knows that if he does any local law enforcement with the murder of Herbert Lee, you know, his life at this point is in great danger. And so what he does is initially he tells the police what they want to hear, that uh, E.H. Hurst was just defending. It was an act of self-defense. 
this was not an, this was this that that's all it was was self defense. Uh, Lewis Allen goes to Bob Moses and tells him the truth and says, "Look, here's what happened. I can't tell Daniel Jones that. I can't tell law enforcement and Liberty that because uh, I'm not going to be protected. I'm going to be the next one to die." Um, and Bob Moses basically says, "Will you tell this to the Justice Department?" And you know, Lewis Allen is well. I'd love to tell the FBI. I'd love to tell the DOJ. I'd love to help you here. But what are you going to do to help me? Because my life's going to be on the line the moment that I tell uh, the feds what what I witnessed. Um, and Bob Moses couldn't protect him. And uh, Lewis Allen was executed in his driveway on January thirty first, nineteen sixty four. And uh, Daniel Jones, who we think was very involved in his murder, uh, by the way, if your uh, listeners want to uh, uh, watch something very, very interesting on Lewis Allen, Steve Croft of 60 Minutes did a wonderful piece back in 08 or 09. It's on uh, YouTube. Uh, viewers can watch it. On Lewis, it's on the Lewis Allen case because the feds went and reinvestigated that case in the 2000s. A good friend of mine was involved in it. And... Um, but when that happened in January of 64, Bob Moses said, I took a stand with my colleagues in SNCC and I basically said, we have to do the summer project now. Uh, we can't continue to, to debate as a group whether we're going to do this project or not because people around me keep dying. Uh, Herbert Lee is dead and his blood is all over my hands. Uh, Lewis Allen is now dead. His blood is all over my hand, and I cannot protect my people, and I have to get the federal government involved. Uh, he says at one point, white Mississippi is the Klan, the end. Uh, and he so at that point, he knows that if he's going to stay in Mississippi, if he's going to continue the work he's going to do, he has to figure out a way to bring the federal government in. And Freedom Summer is his way of doing that context of white supremacy uh so i did not know about mr lee world war ii veteran we just aren't that far removed from memorial day labor day coming up uh, i didn't know about mr allen either they don't have tons of uh really hd superb acted films talking about these folks although i do want to see that uh 60 minutes piece so i love it that's why i encourage folks to learn local history especially if you're in mississippi like my goodness you should be eating all this stuff up metaphor um so you start the text off and explaining this is what got us to the death of these two white boys and james cheney this part often gets left out of the narratives that talk about what happened uh 1964 uh, included and then again going back to the beginning like man if we're talking about unidentified and black bodies and all the rest like yes there were lots of black people who were killed and terrorized maybe not found in the river but certainly we could name them and tell their story continuing mm -hmm. this is page 37 bottom of uh, page 37 you write <clears throat> Charles Marcus Edwards and his wife lived very close to Henry Hezekiah D., a 19-year-old black teenager who worked at a local lumberyard, known by his friends as Pimp for his conked hair, sharp dressing, and easy demeanor, 
D drew attention from local clansmen for two other things. He traveled back and forth to Chicago to visit family and he would often wear a black bandana to protect his pressed locks. In the fervent imagination of Edwards and other members of the Bunkley Clavern, D's trips north and his black do-rag could only signify one thing. He was running guns into Franklin County for the black Muslims. Edwards mentioned D's suspicious activities at a Klan meeting in late April, as they'd done to other local blacks who'd aroused their anger, enmity, and paranoia. The Clavern would target D for a brutal beating just to see what he might know. D's friend, Charles Eddie Moore, also 19 and serving a temporary suspension from Alcorn A&M, excuse me, had attended a Friday night May Day dance at the local high school in Butte. The college freshman spent the night with his cousin, Irby Bell Shaw, who saw him off the following morning. He was wearing a Bamblin sweater with blue jeans and sported a gold Belova watch. M belt buckle and I'll stop there with the description these are also individuals who are generally in fact I played the audio segment at the beginning from the documentary FBI files on Freedom Summer and they mentioned oh hmm. there were two bodies found in the old is the old river and the Mississippi River is that the same thing or well the old river was formed by the Mississippi River when it overflowed and then the the as I understand it the um, the river pulled back and you have these oxbow lakes and so the old river is not connected to the Mississippi River again as I understand it so it's its own kind of entity uh, right around Davis Island there south of Vicksburg I see okay so you at the beginning of the this program today we played the segment from the FBI files documentary on freedom summer and they say yeah we found these bodies at the old river and vicksburg and oh they weren't uh cheney schwerner goodman weren't any of them and you know yes lots of clan activity and oh it was sad i mean this is like a pretty recent documentary same thing i said like man nobody can whip out a phone like who were these folks like we can't put a name on them like is it really that hard to go back and find information on these folks uh can you give us the details on why these murders are important oh i didn't even explain the well yes the murders and then why they're important yeah so uh they become uh gus super important in the story that i'm telling because and, and you foreshadowed this very nicely they become sort of lumped into this larger narrative of, oh, uh, we know that there were a whole bunch of, a whole bunch, not two, a whole bunch of black bodies discovered during the search for Goodman, Schwerner, and Cheney. And what they'll oftentimes do is they'll, they'll reference, they sometimes won't give a name, but they'll reference these two bodies that came out of the old river on July 12th and July 13th. And part of my task in this book is to tell their story. They deserve to have their story told. Now, some other historians have told it, um, but I want to tell their story as fully as I can to show, number one, how they were murdered. Uh, Charles Moore, as I mentioned, and as you mentioned, he has nothing to do with civil rights. He's just hitchhiking with Henry D. 
back to his little community on that Saturday morning when they get picked up by the Klan. He has no, neither of them do. I mean, Henry D. doesn't either. Uh, so here are these two 19-year-old black men who uh, Charles Marcus Edwards and the Bunkley Clavern think, oh, uh, we've been hearing about guns coming into our state. We know, we know Freedom Summer is about ready to happen. Keep in mind, this is, this is late April going May. The Klan knows that the Freedom Summer project is going to start in June. And, uh, they, they figure they're going to get a jump on things and they, they've got their, they've got their eye on this Henry D character. And surely, I mean, he's coming in and out of Chicago all the time. He, he must have some money in his pocket. And so we're going to find out what, um, what he knows. And the clan picks them up. They're hitchhiking. They take them into the Homochitto forest. They tie them both to a tree and they beat the hell out of them with bean poles, which are pendulous long sticks that you can really hurt somebody with. And they beat the hell out of these two boys, young men on this tr with this tree. And about 15 or 20 minutes in, they come to the realization we've got to tell a lie. Otherwise we're going to die here right now, because if we don't tell a lie, they're just going to keep beating us because they think we know something. So what they do to quit to, to stop the beating in the home of Chitta forest is they tell a lie. And the lie is the guns are being kept by a black minister at his church. The beating stops. They're both horrible. I, I don't, they're both still alive, but they're not in good shape. Um, three men go to this, they go and find this black minister with a police officer who's also a Klansman, by the way. His name's Wayne Hutto. He's in the Klan as well. Uh, they go to this church looking for these guns and they tear the church apart. And of course they don't find anything because there's no guns. Um, Moore and Dee have told a lie so that they may live to see Sunday. Um, at which point uh, the three Klansmen who are back in the woods with Moore and D uh, get the word that, okay, um, these guys uh, told us a lie to, um, to try to see Sunday. And so what we need to do now that now that we've beaten them this badly, we're just going to kill them. And so they drive them up. Uh, this guy Parker's involved. Parker's got a lot of money. He's got a landing up by Vicksburg at this, at this old river and they drive them up on the, on the Louisiana side of, of the state. They, they're both still alive. Uh, instead of shooting them, uh, which is what one of the Klansmen wants to do, James Ford Seal says, no, we can't shoot them. We don't need blood all over this boat. Uh, so they tie their bodies to some big engine blocks and railroad parts and they sink each one of them. Uh, this is May 2nd in the, in the old river. And, uh, that's how these two young men meet their end. Now, this is one, uh, macabre, but I mean, hey, if we're going to say terrorism and, you know, all of this is, you know, unnamed mm -hmm. bodies and all of that is important, like telling a story. It's important that they didn't just throw dead bodies in the river. They were tossed in the river alive. So we, that's that's what the historians have determined based on what the Klan, the Charles Marcus Edwards was the FBI's informant, and um, that's the story we have is from him. That's the, not that it would be you know a whole lot better to be 
whatever, strangled, shot, whatever they're going to do, and then they tossed you in. But I mean, wow. And I think you even described that in the book. So then also I'm bound and gagged. And so they throw, I, I believe it was D, if he gets thrown in first, and I have to sit there and mm-hmm. watch all this and know that's it. Like, come on, come on. And we didn't yeah, even do anything. You're gonna be that, next. That, that makes it any better. We didn't even, did they have a gun running operation uh, with the black Muslims from Chicago to Mississippi, incidentally? They had, they had nothing. They had nothing. They weren't, they weren't involved in the movement. They weren't involved in anything. Uh, they were just two local kids. Uh, one worked at the sawmill and, uh, uh, Charles was a student at A&M. Um, I don't even know that they were very good friends. They just happened to be going back to Meadville together that Saturday morning. You wrote that uh, Reverend Clyde Briggs, that he wrote about the search mm. of his church in his uh, journal. Did you get to check out his journal? Uh-huh. Just... I did not get a chance to see his journal. I don't know if it survives. Oh, okay. Uh, You wrote in the book after the whole journal and everything, almost immediately after the bodies had been discovered in the old river, the Bunkley clan fired into Reverend Briggs home on July 13, barely missing his sleeping Mm -hmm. daughter, Chastity, whose bedroom was on the north side of the house facing the highway. The bullet lodged in a door frame. The warning shot sent a clear message. Talk to the FBI and you and your family are next. Six months later, the intrepid educator and minister was dead, rumored to have been poisoned at the age of 42. Now, I mean, you want to talk about disgraceful. And as a minister, on top of that, who also was not smuggling guns, another one, I mean, if you want a made-for-HBO movie or something, like, Mm. right there, Mm. Another important yeah, thing. Yeah, and yes, I mean, sorry. go ahead. Sorry. No, that's quite all right, Gus. I just wanted to throw in there real quick. Uh, the the reason they were called the Bunkley Clavern, uh, these this was this was a group affiliated with Sam Bowers and the White Knights of the Klan. Uh, but the Bunkley Clavern was called the Bunkley Clavern because all these guys went to the Bunkley Baptist Church. Now, if that's not ironic, religion of white supremacy I have that highlighted so many times uh, in the text but there you go hey um, let me see my my next note the this is on page 43 you already mentioned uh, the great Fanny Lou Hamer uh, this is words I talked about words being so important uh, make sure this is So they're having their discussion uh, in SNCC about whether or not they're going to bring white people down to Mississippi Mm. and whether that's going to disrupt. In fact, that'd be great. You can give the background while I'm fumbling from my footnote, because this was a big deal. Bob Moses threatens to leave SNCC, Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, uh, if, you know, they say, hey, we're not going to bring these white Mm -hmm. people down. Other opponents of that position say, well, hey, we've done, we're supposed to be about building organic leadership uh, amongst locals here. Now Mm -hmm. we're going to bring all these Ivy League teenage snobby white kids down here Mm -hmm. and have them tell you such and such and you're not even literate and all the like. So they have these two competing goals trying to weigh out the calculus of this. Can you kind of fact or give us the details? Yeah, so so I want to back up, Gus, if you let me to the Freedom Vote, which 
your listeners need to know about the Freedom Boat before we get into Freedom Summer, because without the Freedom Boat, we frankly just don't have Freedom Summer. Uh, Freedom Summer gets all the history's oxygen um, because it's so important in so many ways, but without the Freedom Boat, we don't have it. So what's the Freedom Boat? So in October of 1963, uh, the, con- the, the Council of Federated Organizations, which the, the acronym is COFO, COFO is made up of SNCC, Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, CORE, Congress of Racial Equality, SCLC, Southern Christian Leadership Conference, and the NAACP, those four organizations. Uh, the movement in Mississippi in the late summer is pretty miserable. Uh, Medgar Evers has been murdered. All the oxygen kind of got sucked out of the movement with his death. And so the movement in Mississippi is really struggling in August and September 1963. Well, Moses, working with this white fellow by the name of Allard Lowenstein, who uh, was was involved in civil rights all around the country, they come up with an idea. And different historians give credit to different people, whether it's Lowenstein or Moses. But the two of them come up with the idea, what we need to do is we need something different and something radical. Because Again, what we're doing right now isn't working. People have pulled funding for us. We can't get people out of jail because we can't post bail. Uh, we're, we're kind of rudderless here. So they, they come up with this idea. Let's run a parallel gubernatorial election. Let's run a black Mississippian and a white Mississippian and pretend, because that's what it's going to have to be for now, let's pretend they're actually running for higher office. So they get a really important fellow, another World War II veteran by the name of Aaron Henry, who's a pharmacist in Clarksdale. He's going to be uh, the gubernatorial candidate, and his lieutenant governor is going to be a white gentleman by the name of Ed King, who is a chaplain at Tougaloo College. Uh, Reverend King to this day is a really good friend of mine, and he's, he's been so instrumental for my students over many, many years. We can talk about that later. Uh, He's in his mid-80s, not in the best of health, but he agrees and he knows the moment he says yes to Bob Moses asking him to do this, his family's going to be run out of state and he's going to be the target of of violence. And he's right. Anyway, uh, it's now October and they want, they have this goal of having 200,000 black Mississippians vote for this freedom ticket. Uh, They got four weeks, five weeks how in the world are they going to cover the whole state? Uh, how, are, how in the world, where's the money going to come from to run these two candidates? Because they want these candidates to travel the state and give speeches and pretend it's the real thing. And um, they hit on the idea. Lowenstein says to, to, to Bob Moses, look, I think I got this. I think I can cover this. I'm going to call in a couple of favors. I'm going to call in a favor at Stanford, where I was a dean two years ago. And I'm going to call in a favorite Yale, where I was a student in law school several years ago, and I'm still tight with the chaplain, William Sloan Coffin. If I can bring 50 or 60 white men in the next month to help us canvas and to fundraise and to set up a media operation, would you be down with that? And they agree to do it. And so they start recruiting very quickly at Stanford. And they start recruiting at Yale. And here come the students in cars, right? There's, I, And I got to meet some of these guys. And they have these amazing stories of jumping in a car 
and driving literally 2,000 miles, stopping for gas, and that's all they're doing because they're coming from Stanford, and working, getting their marching orders in Jackson from Bob Moses, going wherever he says for three, four, five days, jumping in the car and going back to Stanford because they're in school. (laughs) But what's amazing is the Freedom Vote campaign really works. They didn't get 200,000 African-American men and women to vote, but they got 82,000. And uh, the national media covered it. And I think most importantly for Bob Moses, as he's been interviewed about the Freedom Vote a good bit, is he said, you know what it did? The Freedom Vote, what it did is it unleashed black Mississippians' sense of who they were. They went from being sharecroppers to citizens overnight. And that mattered fundamentally to how they viewed themselves. Um, that somebody was, and, and the other thing which was really important is that, um, the ballots were collected at barbershops, at beauticians, at churches. And so it was safe. You didn't have to go to the courthouse, which was a, a, a the site of white supremacy in Mississippi was the courthouse. So, uh, it was this incredible success. And the other thing which I spend a lot of time in the book talking about, Stokely Carmichael talks about it, Lawrence Guillot talks about it, Bob Moses talks about it, nobody got killed. Nobody even really got hurt. Um, Bob Moses says at one point, you know, what's thinking about this, what's crazy is somebody shut off the violence switch. I don't know who it was, but it got shut off. And uh, Lawrence Guillot said, I couldn't believe watching these white kids zip around the state in their fancy cars. I couldn't believe how many DOJ attorneys and FBI agents were in the field watching them. I talked to a guy from Yale. Um, He got arrested two hours after he was in the state for distributing a leaflet in Indianola, Mississippi. Uh, and within two hours of being in jail, he's being interviewed by a DOJ attorney. So the feds are in the state, and Bob Moses is, couldn't be happier because the federal government is finally taking an interest in voting rights in Mississippi. Now, they're doing it, right, because there's 50 or 60 white kids from Yale and Stanford. He gets that. He, he understands that. Um, and so he says uh, to Stokely, he says to Lawrence Guillot, I can't believe what we just did because it was incredibly ambitious and we pulled it off and nobody got killed. So these white kids seem to provide, yeah, they provided the muscle and the manpower and the help that we needed to get, you know, people registered in voting. Uh, but they, they also provided a shield. Um, I'm going to stop right there. I know you probably got a question or two for me about the freedom vote. White lives matter, uh, and more I think mm. for listeners just to kind of grasp at this time the amount of terror. I mean, just giving the stories right with Charles Moore and Henry D, who were not mm. activists mm-hmm. and all the rest of it, and even Reverend Briggs, uh, who's just another totally innocent right. victim of, of white terrorism in all of this. Uh, but just saying that you want to vote, you could be killed mm. and all the rest of it. So, 
from many black people. Yeah, oh, absolutely. As you were talking about the importance of the, the vote, the freedom vote uh, for the summer, that is how we get to Freedom Summer uh, and all these vo- white volunteers coming down to Mississippi uh, to get black mm-hmm. because the racist line at the time was, hey, the Negroes are happy. They don't even want to vote. What are you talking right. about? They don't want to. They don't want to vote. Leave <laughs> go, them alone. Right. Go ask our Negroes. Hey, what, what, you don't want to vote. Do you? See, see, you're coming down here and agitating. Everything is fine. Get on. And you right. do. After years of terrorism, you do have black people who, hey, this is a waste of time. I'm going to mm-hmm. go. As you said, I'm not going mm-hmm. to the black barbershop. I'm going down to the courthouse where the racist white woman or racist white man or both uh, will be there and they'll lie and do all their tricks with or racist whatever chicanery with the tri- uh, test uh, and all the rest of it uh-huh. and or I will be booted off of my sharecropping job and right. or I mean just yep. long list of hey I'm not even bothering with that I'm good so just to kind of break through right. that t- it would probably be difficult like me explaining it probably doesn't even do justice to years, century, generations of all of this to get someone mm-hmm. to even, yes, I'm willing to risk my life to go and do this ballot thing, which they probably won't even count. Just for listeners to kind of think about. Yeah. Yes, sir. Did you, anything else to add in? Yeah, no, I was, I was just saying you're exactly right. And, uh, it, it didn't count. It was, you know, the, the press kind of made fun of it in some ways. They call it a mock election, but, but again, Bob Moses knew and Dave Dennis knew you, you can follow their correspondence in the archives. And John Lewis says the same thing. This changed everything. These four weeks, these five weeks, new game, uh, new, new everything. Um, this changed everything. Um, keep in mind more in D there's six months in the future. And I think a really good question at this point is, so the freedom vote ends officially the first week of November. And they're counting their ballots, and, and Moses and Kofo are pretty happy, and they're thinking ahead. And the other thing you got going on in Mississippi right now is, boy, does the Klan take notice of what just happened. They see the feds in town, they see the DOJ, and they see all these white people helping black people register for even this mock election. And so the Klan, uh, almost overnight, begins organizing. Uh and between November 63 and late April 64, um, man, the Klan is, uh, Sam Bowers is organizing it county by county. And one of the things that kind of blew me away in doing my research was on April 24th, which was a Friday night, uh, Mississippi has 82 counties. 64 of those counties on that Friday night, uh, the Klan burned across. And the Klan wasn't just out playing on a Friday night. This was a direct message to Kofo that said, we know you're coming. Uh, more in D, you're dead eight days later. So th- this is this is the resistance, right? This is the pushback. This is the this is kind of you talk about the effects of rhetoric. Here it is. Absolutely. Uh context of white supremacy um wow so i found my footnote and i just wanted to add we okay. were talking about the trek of the young whites 
uh, from Stanford and wherever yeah. else, and them going 2,000 miles to come down to grimy old Mississippi uh, to help out. And Bob Moses saying, hey, the switch, no violence. This is amazing. We should do more of this. Uh, I'm sure their 2,000-mile trek was quite a bit less adventurous than the black people that Isabel Wilkerson talks about in The Warmth of Other Sons making their thousand-mile trek with no place to stop <laughs> and all the rest of it. Uh, Green Book, if you like. Uh, might come back to that later. Uh, but yes, my footnote, sure. very important background information, and I mean why he includes that in the text in terms of detail, all of those cross-burnings strategically done, all those counties throughout the state of Mississippi that is the power of rhetoric wow quite and again like I said now hey it's one thing to talk about all of this and you know I'm tough and man you have to live and work and your children go to school and all the rest your family and they're burning crosses in your county and in the county of all your friends and relatives now mm-hmm. tell me I'm a tough woman. I'm a tough guy. I'm going to go vote. Okay. Right. Oh, and. Well, the other thing. Yes. The other thing. Yeah. So, so guess the other thing is, is when you go to the, to the, the county courthouse to register to vote, your name's going to be in the newspaper next mm-hmm. week. Mm-hmm. Uh, your address is going to be in the newspaper. So you just announced to every bad guy in Mississippi where you live. Absolutely. Uh, doxing, I guess they would call that now, but not something uh, that new. Uh, my footnote, so this is all in black bodies in the river. You write, this is a 20, bottom of 27. More specifically, Bob okay. Moses raised the possibility of bringing upwards of 5,000 white college students to Mississippi in 1964. A massive escalation of the freedom vote experiment. Why so many so fast? Moses argued that the Citizens Council, and I do want to even pause right there because he said the Ku Klux Klan and, uh, hey, terrorist organizations, but they abound Mississippi's Mississippi State Sovereignty Commission is not the Klan. This is a separate terror, and you name a number of them throughout the uh, text, mm-hmm. but I mean, that is, details important. Anyway, the Citizens Council, the repressive state government, and the increasing mechanization of plantation life were driving blacks out of the state in just a few more years Mississippi blacks might lose some of their numerical superiority especially in the Delta Delta beyond this the uncharacteristically confrontational Moses threatened to leave SNCC altogether if the staff voted to exclude whites on a future project couldn't others see that whites created national publicity for their work and that such publicity could be leveraged for and measured in their bodily protection, question mark, Lawrence Guyot could. So could Fannie Lou Hamer, who'd been horribly brutalized by white police officers in a Winona, Mississippi jail in June 1963. If we're going to break down this barrier of segregation, the former sharecropper declared we can't segregate ourselves. Important moment, obviously, Bob Moses's viewpoint one on this, but this one I think is important for a number of reasons, but I even, I put words 
are super important. I pointed this out. We had uh, the talk about the religion of white supremacy. Uh, we had the white author in South Carolina, uh, Hawkins, J. Russell Hawkins. He was a guest on our program. We were talking about his book and the word segregation. Now, this is within a quote, Fannie Lou Hamer. I think it's super important because we're not really talking about segregation. We're talking about the system of white supremacy. And I think that word segregation, it mm. comes up a lot in the text. And that's not really mm. what we're talking about. What are your thoughts on the word segregation, Dr. Howe? Yeah, I see what you're saying. Uh, I think all Fannie Lou, Fannie Lou Hamer was trying to say was uh, this decision that we're trying to make. And, you know, SNCC made decisions unanimously. It was not a. 51 to 49 vote no the 51 side wins they did things unanimously so they're trying to talk this through as a group and you know there's there's a there's a group of uh cofo organizers who say um no we we can't have uh we can't have any white kids come down here and try to do this work um, because it's anathema to what we're trying to do, which is to cultivate leadership among local black people here who trust us and know us. And we've been here for two years. We've been cutting wood with them. We eat dinner with them. We go to church with them. We sing with them. You can't bring in 22-year-old Harvard kids who know nothing about Mississippi and uh, – and, and, and assume that they're going to be able to help us organize black people in the Delta. And Fannie Lou Hamer is saying, look, uh, I get your point. Um, but this cannot, this decision that we're trying to make right now, it can't be a, a white or a black thing. It has to be both. Uh, Giat says the same thing. It has to be, we, we have to do this. Uh, we, we have to have white people help us get over this next hurdle. Um, and and Moses had his eye on publicity. Um, a lot of SNCC kids hated that. It's like, how dare you bring up publicity? We're not about publicity. We shun the media. We're not. A, we're in the Delta here. Forget media. And Bob Moses was like, look, uh, you can keep shunning the media, and you'll keep getting Herbert Lee and Lewis Allen killed. Um, so that's part of that argument there. Context of white supremacy, Doctor David Hauk. Uh, again, Bob Moses' side, obviously, they won. And even he was correct. Uh, you know, hindsight is 2020 in terms of the attention, the same calculus that, hey, if, if mm. this white mm. terrorism happens and it's some young white uh, men, and since they're saying young white men that this is happening to, there's going to mm -hmm. be a very different mm -hmm. response. Obviously, he was correct. And even the attention component of it, hey, nobody cares. Mr. Allen, World War II veteran nobody cares like white person nope. totally different all kinds of attention as you said where did all these FBI agents mm -hmm. come from where did all these federal officials come on mm -hmm. what's going on here totally yeah. get it he was super 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 correct in that logic but just with in terms of the term segregation because a lot of this and this is the same thing that we talked about with Professor J. Russell, J. Russell Hawkins segregation uh -huh. desegregation frequently that ends up being talked about as though the problem is black people and white people being separate 
and that once we are mm-hmm. together, so-called integrated, that that will solve the problem. Now, obviously, it does not. That's not what we're talking about at mm-hmm. all. These terms just mm-hmm. that's, mm-hmm. these terms confuse our understanding of what are we really talking about? We're talking about a power dynamic. And this is the same thing I said mm-hmm. with uh, Professor J. Russell Hawkins. And I made it more forcefully with him because he was, this is a quote you're quoting, Fannie Lou Hamer. He was using mm-hmm. the term segregation, desegregation regularly throughout the text. And I said the same point that mm-hmm. I'm about to make here. Uh, are you familiar with uh, the book, Dr. Kenneth O'Reilly, his book, Racial Matters, the FBI's secret file on black America from 1960 to 1972? I've had it in my hands, but it's been a long, long time ago. Okay. He's a guest on our program two times. Uh, in fact, for listeners, the Hi. only reason I know about this book, Dr. Frances Cress Welsing, she said, if you have not read this book, you should not speak about racism, white supremacy. Why did she say that? Many reasons. I'm skipping to page 173. He has a whole chapter on Freedom Summer Mississippi burning. Uh, He writes, Mm -hmm. FBI Inspector Joseph Sullivan led the effort in the field, who's in your book, led the effort in the field to solve the Philadelphia murders. Robert Wick, a bureau executive who had worked on the Mac Charles Parker lynching in Mm. Poplarville, Mississippi, back in 1959, said, that's another one, they could make a movie about that too, said Sullivan was Mm -hmm. absolutely the best there is. If I ever did anything wrong, the last man in the world I want after me would be Joe Sullivan. The people who Mm. buried Schwerner, Cheney, and Goodman learned that firsthand. Sullivan headed a massive investigation captioned My Burn, a reference to the burning of the church in Longdale that involved 250 agents, White Lives Matter. They interviewed over 1,000 Mississippi (laughs) residents, including 480 Klansmen, just to let them know who they are. We know who they are, Mm -hmm. sorry. Hoover said, spent spent $815,000 and worked in the swamps infested with rattlesnakes and water moccasins. The dredging process turned up several black corpses and parts thereof, including a torso clad in a core t-shirt. Heard that before. Many Uh, agents uh. missed vacation time and only a few got home for Christmas. They overlooked nothing. Missed no angle. We also have a long line of individual Negro women with whom the sheriff has had sexual relations, the director told the president. We are digging into that more for persuasive evidence on him when we bring him in so we can pressure on him. Now, man... Had you seen this before, that this was a part of the FBI's investigation? We're going to use this to pressure the sheriff in this case to give up the goods? No, I didn't know they went after Rainey's sex life. That's new to me. Dr. Kenneth O'Reilly, Racial Matters, the FBI's secret file on black America, 1960 to 1972. The reason that I read this, even though I think it's so cute that they have uh, a little ode to, again, the name Herbert Orsby, 
O-R-S-B-Y. I guess it's debatable about the core T-shirt. We'll get to that uh, in a moment. But the important thing is that he was identified a long time ago. Wouldn't take that much to put a name on it. But anyway, Mm -hmm. the reason that I read that was because that's why I said we're not really talking about segregation. We're not really talking about so-called separation. If it was really separation, Fannie Lou Hamer wouldn't have been on the plantation. She wouldn't have had to worry about being thrown off and losing her housing and all that. Mm. If it was separation, we certainly would not. Because mm. with J. Russell Hawkins, we were talking about South Carolina. So during this period, it was J. Strom Thurmond. We certainly, mm-hmm. the way that I said it with him, talk about rhetoric. I said, make it plain. If it was separation, <laughs> we wouldn't have to say, J. Strom Thurmond, get your penis out of that teenage black child. If it was separation same thing here apparently with the white and that's i'm not surprised by this like that's not talked about widely i'm not surprised about that either but that's why i mean we are not talking about this accurately which is a part of why we haven't solved this problem does that make sense especially someone who's about language and words am i making sense dr how i i got you i got you okay context of white supremacy uh and as I, we continue with all of this, the Cheney, Cheney, Schwerner, Goodman murders, I'm deliberately kind of eh, in the background. They have so many big stories and there's so many well-known and all the rest of, mm-hmm. some of these other cases that we've talked about are not known at all. Mr. Or, or can't even say mystery. He was a teenager. Uh, Herbert Orsby included. Uh, continuing, when I read this book, I said, man. I was looking for Cointelpro to pop up, and it did not. Are you aware of Cointelpro, the FBI's campaign? Mm-hmm. Yes. Okay. Mm-hmm. Did you think that's relevant to what you're talking about? I don't think so in the context of Freedom Summer, because doesn't Coin- Cointelpro come quite a bit later? Well, they've been carrying it out. Well, I mean, hey, now, do we get all the details? But I, I'm pretty sure. Well, he said, he just said, 1960. To 1972, that's what his book is all about, Kenneth O'Reilly, their Pro activities. Now, he would argue, or he said it flagrantly on the program, and he starts his book that way because his book starts with Marcus Garvey, that black people mm. have been suspect because they're treated like garbage. That was his metaphor. That was his metaphor. Black people are treated like garbage, so the FBI knows they are suspect. We got to keep tabs on them. In fact... I smiled when you said that they had the voting in barbershops. He mentions and talked about it with us explicitly. That's one of the places the FBI has for decades kept tabs on. You want to know what's happening with Mm. black people? Go pay somebody and get informants at the black barbershop. He talked about that in detail. But at any rate, no, Cointelpro was happening during this time period. In fact, I'm going to flip forward one page in Dr. O'Reilly's book. In fact, for the you stand by your work with your brag, so we've been on the air for 13 years. Dr. Kenneth O'Reilly was one of our first 50 programs out of more than 2,000 like from day one. Wow. Wow. So he says on page 177, man, I felt so good when I went back and looked at this. The great John Lewis mentioned on this program so many times. I always I think today is probably one of the few times in 13 years where I've actually said it the way I have today. I normally and it's just because I've been reading their names and see it in your book. The way I always deliberately say it is James Cheney and those two white boys. 
from going back and looking at Kenneth O'Reilly's book, which is part of what you talk about in your book. That's part of the pushback that black people have had over the years and unnamed bodies and all the rest of it, that that's probably what's animating some of that to a degree. But this is Dr. Kenneth O'Reilly's book on page 176. He says, at one time, there appeared to be a consensus that the FBI had done a good job. Not everyone was appeased. It's a shame, John Lewis said. The national concern is aroused only after two white boys are missing. SNCC placed the full responsibility for these deaths directly in the hands of the United States Justice Department and the Federal Bureau of Investigation. That statement reflected more accurately than the words of praise from King, Young, and Wilkins or the comments of Sumner's, Sumner Stone's Orchid for the Day, the view of the people who had organized Freedom Summer in the first place. Joseph Sullivan and the other FBI agents in Mississippi had done a good job, but SNCC activists still believed they had enemies within the hierarchies of the FBI and the Justice Department. Other FBI Mm -hmm. actions during the course of the Freedom Summer would show that the SNCC people were right about Hoover and his men and nearly right about the department at this time now that my memory is going back like oh yeah all in fact i suspect every person named in your book stokely stokely carmichael i know like i checked that thing ella baker you can run the lit dick gregory dr king all of these folks have extensive cointel profiles like the fbi was keeping super tabs on if not tapping their phones and all the rest of it like I thought that was super important and because that is so neglected when we talk about this period particularly to have dangerous lies like Mississippi burning where the FBI and J. Edgar Hoover and the white men of the Justice Department are glorious heroes devastating the Klan when no they were instigating murders of Fred Hampton, Bunchy Clark Mark, excuse me, Mark Clark, Bunchy Carter, maybe Dr. King, and other nefarious illegal activities, probably against, as I said, all of the major black participants mentioned in your book, and maybe, I suspect, even probably some of the white people had uh, cointel profiles at this mm-hmm. point. What, you're, am I, again, sure. am I talking crazy? Let me know if I'm not making sense. No, no, I think, I think you're absolutely right, and I would just throw in, Gus, that, um, if the FBI wasn't uh, breathing down their necks, the, certainly the Mississippi Sovereignty Commission was. For sure. I'm sure they both have. Fi- For people who don't know, because everybody, well, I won't say everybody, to retract retract that from the record, I'm sorry. Everybody doesn't know the Klan, but I think the Klan is more popular. They have lots of documentaries and movies. Mississippi Burning, the Klan, they have lots of images of that. Mm. The Mississippi State Sovereignty Commission I suspect you have a lot of folks, black people, victims in Mississippi who are not quite aware of what that is. And I said, hey, that's a terrorist element, too. They just going to do all the crude cross burning and such of the Klan. Is that a true statement? And can you give us some background for listeners? Mississippi State Sovereignty Commission? Sure. Yeah. So the Sovereignty Commission was uh, founded by the state. So it's, it's the legislature created tax funded organization that spies on anybody doing anything with civil rights in Mississippi. It starts, I believe it's inception is March of 56. 
and it has a long, long run. Um, and so, right, if you in in they were, you know, they were they were bad news. They Jerry Mitchell got you started our broadcast night talking about Dela Beckwith, and Jerry Mitchell, a good friend of mine who wrote for years and years with the Clarion Ledger, uh, he helped get that case reopened a third time when they actually got Dela Beckwith using the Savcom papers because the Sovereignty Commission was very much involved in the jury selection. Uh, and how would you know this? Well, somebody kept a record of it, and Jerry got access to those records through some. Now, what's, what's great is so Jerry had to kind of use some favors to get access to those papers. Mississippi, God bless them, has digitized all the papers in the Sovereignty Commission. So anybody, and, and what was, and, and Mississippi knew that the moment they made these papers available online, they were going to expose a lot of people potentially. Their secrets, their affairs, their, right, because, you know, the state was spying on people. And so what they, before they went live, they invited people to come to Jackson, search their name, and take out papers uh, that they that were incriminating to them. So they did that, and then they digitized the papers. So your listeners can go to the Mississippi Department of Archives and History, uh, their landing page, and I think you just you just click on the research tab, and you'll see a link to the the Sovereignty Commission papers, and you can search them by photographs, you can search them by last name. Uh, it's an amazing resource, and. Um, while the FBI definitely had its hooks in deep into civil rights leadership, uh, the Sovereignty Commission in Mississippi did too. Um, and uh, so, right, uh, the, the that, that's that, that's a part of the story that I that's that's not super germane to the story that I'm telling, but it's certainly germane to the story that you brought up with the FBI and spying context of white supremacy i don't know i'd have to look through those documents i guess maybe i don't know they're amazing they're amazing <laughs> I have to, they're amazing i would have to look like wow <laughs> I, uh hmm. i just i had to make sure i go back to make sure did i hear that correctly so before they digitized and, and published these documents mm-hmm. uh who keeps a mm-hmm. record of of what was going on and jury selection and we can you know finagle that to our advantage before they did so they said okay we're going to publish this Anyone whose name is in this document, we'll give you an opportunity. You can come check them out. Something's incriminated. You can extract that from what's going to be publicized. Did I hear that correctly? Uh-huh. You did. And I, I got to go back to because there was a big lawsuit over this. I mean, it took a long time for these papers to be made available. Um, but that was the concern that, um, hey, we're going to victimize black folks and white folks again who were movement uh, allies in Mississippi by – Showing, showing the world and their families these secrets that, and a lot of them were just rumors, right? They were unconfirmed rumors. Um, uh, for example, uh, Reverend George Lee, who was murdered in 1955, uh, there's, there's a, there's not a, there's not a file on him, but the FBI turned up that, oh, there were some people saying that he was having affairs with local women. Well, he couldn't prove that. And that was just defaming him and his family. So, um, yeah, there was an opportunity there for uh, people named in files to come have a look. I don't know how much stuff, you know, if, for example, I don't know, Gus, if you had if you had a file with the Mississippi Sovereignty Commission and there was there was some papers, there was some spying on you that was totally nebulous that you showed up to a church and attended a meeting. 
whether you can pull that document or not. I don't know that. I, my th- you can correct me if I'm wrong. My thought press w- process was, I, w- I mean, that, I'm, I'm very aware that that sort of thing happened. In fact, we talked about that with John Patash, uh and with Dr. Kenneth O'Reilly. Same thing with Dr. King. Uh, I said, like, Selma mm-hmm. and some mm-hmm. of these other projects, all of this. Oh, my gosh, he had all those affairs. and blah, blah, blah. That's another one. I said, right. hey. His wife reading is more important than uh, watching television. Coretta Scott King wrote an autobiography and refuted all of that. Like you could say, hey, maybe she's, you know, being biased and she's just trying to protect her name and all that. But I mean, at least you could include, well, hey, she did have a word to say about all of this as opposed to we're just going off mm-hmm. of like FBI, J. Edgar, Cointel Pro always has to be mentioned. Like always, 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 always. It is such an enormously mm-hmm. important program uh, to everything we've been talking about. Um, I just, for listeners and the, sover- oh, the sovereignty part, my thought process was, so if my uncle or dad or grandfather, if they were mm-hmm. doing something criminal in all of this, whatever, you know, helping get a black person fired or finagling the jury, whatever, I can go look and get their that part of it taken out. That's what I was thinking. Like this is going to be something where because there's lots of that generational protection of racists where we yeah. got all of these white people. I played that audio at the beginning. They talked about ghosts of old mists, which is not really this, but kind of related. James Meredith, who is one of my heroes. I don't even mm. have heroes, but I mean, what you want to talk about a major league film? Man, James Meredith. Nobody should get a film if James Meredith mm-hmm. doesn't get a film. Um, but <laughs> I hear they, you. they had that yep. documentary on James Meredith, and they talked about all the terrorism and everything that he faced. The filmmaker, born and raised in Mississippi, grad of Ole Miss. His family went uh-huh. to Ole Miss. They started looking at those photographs, and he said, ooh, that looks like Uncle Fred. Mm. I went to mm. ask my mom and she was unequivocal. <laughs> and he said the day, I mean, it's not funny. Cause I mean, James Meredith could have been killed. They'd killed. That's another one. They killed white people could have killed James Meredith easily. But, uh, he said, this looks like uncle Fred. And that's what I've said. Like, Hey, these folks could be identified. Like, Hey, let's stop playing mm. games here. Mm. All of these folks mm-hmm. could easily be named. Let's stop protecting racists. Cause that's been a generational habit. Like we got, facial recognition and all the rest of it let's stop protecting racists but there seems that's what i was thinking this mm-hmm. was going to be but they can come am i incorrect in thinking that or was, is that not what they were doing? no i'm with you i hear okay. you okay. i hear you uh and i don't and i and i guess i don't want to mislead your uh listeners to think that i i know the answer to the question because i need to go look at it and see how that because it was it was in the courts for quite a while uh, and I'm not sure how it eventually all fell out because you're right. Some of those documents need to stay in there so people like me and you can go read them. Ivan would love for the rumors to stay to be truthful. I mean, I would, even if it was me, let's say it was me <laughs> and they had, you said it was something, yeah. hey, really innocuous. He went to church and, you know, hung out, had a, you know, vegan popsicle and then went home. Okay, who cares? Uh, I wouldn't care if they changed that. Like, oh my God, he was out looking for, you know, sex workers and doing narcotics and I, I don't care. Let's get it. Just where did you get this from? 
did somebody see this? Do you have pictures? Do you have video? Like, is this just a field or like something? Like, let's see. Just leave it all there. Don't give me the redactions and all the. I've seen all of that Mm. with CoinTelPro. Mm -hmm. Just leave everything there, and then we can Mm -hmm. evaluate. But that consistently doesn't happen Mm. in the system of white supremacy and the either obfuscation. That's why I can just boil it down to the one word. The obfuscation ends up benefiting those classified as white, not some of the time, every time in these sort of cases. Mm. I'm not even aware of an anomaly that I can point to. Uh, we did have folks who called in, but I mean, good gracious. I mentioned his name so many. This another, They don't have films about him either. Most of the time, they don't even spell his name correctly. Uh, so Herbert Orsby. H E R B E R T O R S B Y Herbert Orsby. Maybe he had a core shirt. Evidence, I guess, says maybe he didn't. Probably didn't, but minimum, let's get the name correct. Who is Herbert Orsby? Yeah, well, I'm so glad you brought his name up because he's so important in so many ways and nobody's written much about him. Uh, when people refer to him, especially people my tribe of historians, they don't even give him a name most of the time. And they totally screw up his history and they claim that his torso was found. Well, no, we think uh, on September 6th, he's visiting his grandparents in Pickens, Mississippi. He's visiting from New Orleans. He's 14. Uh, grandfather Toby Hart said that he went in the sound like their yard backed up to the big black river and he was walking to a neighbor's house and, and, and he didn't see it. So we don't know for sure, but he went missing that night. And the next day his body turned up a pulp mill worker downstream, uh, found his body. And of course, immediately core, or I'm sorry, COFO, uh, they have an incident report and they, they have a Watts line and they're, you know, they're tracking their people all the time and they get word that a 14 year old body has come out of a big black river. Well, you know, <laughs> you and I know the story Emma Till well enough to know that, okay, this is, here comes, you know, five alarm fire. Who's the black kid in the river? Uh, who killed him? And, um, and I've tried to track down the, the very beginning of when Kofo wrote about this body in the big black river. And it's, you can find it. And I did find it, you know, the first, the first phone call that came in and you kind of track, you know, who this is and there's a name and, and then there's this rumor that there, he was wearing a core shirt and that he was somehow involved in movement work. Well, I didn't know how Gus to get to the bottom of the question of, of, uh, Herbert Orsby and whether he was or was not involved in movement work. But I reached out to a African-American writer at the times Picayune newspaper. And because he was in new Orleans, I began asking about, did, did, did he know anything about this name or this family? You know, it was just a wild, you know, kind of needle in a haystack. And, and he said he didn't, but he was, friendly with Jerome Smith. Now, Jerome Smith, for listeners at home, it might might not be a Bob Moses kind of popular name, but Jerome Smith was the core guy in New Orleans, he and Dave Dennis. 
And so this writer for the Picayune said, I'll put you in touch with Jerome Smith. He would know. So he did. He gave me his number. I called Jerome Smith and I asked him, core t-shirt, Herbert Orsby, 1964. And, and he said, I'm going to get back with you because I'm not going to rely on my memory here. And so he called me back a week later and said, no, uh, nobody knows who this kid was. Nobody thinks he had any affiliation at all with core. Um, the FBI went and w- with the, the Emmett Till unsolved civil rights cold cases initiative, they looked at that case. And I was able, the Southern Poverty Law Law Center gave me the FBI report. And if your readers are interested, I'm happy to pass it along. It's interesting. Uh, They went and looked, and again, it's the FBI, so grain of salt here. Uh, They went and dug up the old data, dug up their old files, and uh, I think found a few family members, uh, found some interviews with the grandparents, and the grandfather said, no, he was not wearing a core shirt. Uh, no, he was not involved in any movement activities. And and we know that, you know, Kofa was not in Pickens. They, the closest town was Canton, which was more than 20 miles away. So, uh, but he gets lumped into, he's on the wall at, you know, the Civil Rights Museum in Jackson. He's the Southern Poverty Law Center. And so there's this kind of this almost eagerness to lump him into a movement martyr. And um, I understand that impulse. Uh, as a historian, I also kind of want to know, well, what happened to him and why are we so eager to put him up on the wall when, first of all, we don't Mississippi misspelled his name the first time, uh, which I pointed out to the people at the, at the museum. Uh, they've got since corrected it. And um, why haven't we done extensive oral histories with his mom, his dad? Why haven't, why haven't we found them? Um, that that work is waiting to be done, and it's still waiting to be done. That's a really important takeaway, and I can be uh, fully uh, transparent on this one. I was, uh, I did not know, so I was embarrassed that I did not know Charles Moore. Henry D, although there's not as much content. Lewis Allen, I didn't know any of these folks, although there's not as much content written on them. As I said, I did know the name Herbert Orsby. I'd read that. I just forgot. Mm. I mean, that's, you know, we're all human. Mm. You do forget. But I mean, hey, that's what I took. One of the takeaways I will continue to emphasize. Strive for accuracy. The same reason I say James Cheney and those two white boys, just like John Lewis said, direct quote, like I do not see those two white boys names misspelled. You had lots of monuments (laughs) and, and what have you and all over, not just in Mississippi, all over. We are going to make sure in movies and what have you, they spell their names correctly. In fact, they generally do not just say, oh, Freedom Summer and those guys that got it. They knew they give the names. Bam. They are important. If that is true, like, man, we can take a few seconds. In my opinion, are you of the opinion you think with, uh, I keep wanting to say Mr. Ah, are you of the opinion that 14-year-old uh, Herbert Orsby, you think this was just accidental drowning just based on the evidence? 
based on what I've seen, yes. Until until I get other evidence, and I'm and I'm open to that evidence because uh, it might be out there, but nobody's found it yet. So until I see evidence to the contrary, uh, I believe Jerome Smith. I I believe less the FBI. I believe Jerome Smith, and I believe Herbert Orsby's grandfather. Um, that's where I am on that right now. Yeah. Okay. Even and and even with your position, just based on the evidence, what you've seen, you think this is an accidental drowning. You can see where it would be logical if someone looked at this and said, "Well, I'm going to maintain some suspicion that there may have been foul play." You can see why, reasonably, logically. Absolutely. Okay. Okay. Absolutely. Absolutely. I'm of the opinion. No, I, I don't think. Yeah, go ahead. Mm-hmm. Go ahead. Then go ahead. No, no, no. I was, I was finished. I, uh, I wanted to hear what you had to say. Oh, okay. Uh, I'm of the opinion as Cointel Pro was in operation during all of this, and I mean, I have lots of suspicion. However, mm-hmm. even if it turns out this is an accidental drowning, no problem. In my view, that would just be you would still put his name on the wall. And I said, oh, my gosh, there's so many reasons why I look at this and said we are right where we're supposed to be reading your book at this very moment. We mm. just talked about they have a shortage of lifeguards, labor shortage, right? COVID-19 and all that's still going on. And they said this is going to disproportionately impact non-white children. And they went with the whole mm. legacy. Are you familiar with the book? Uh, Trouble Waters uh, about the history of trying to so-called uh, integrate uh, public swimming pools in places like Mississippi. Is I'm I'm familiar with Dr. Mason down in I think it's Biloxi, but I'm not sure about that one. Okay, uh, I was trying to get him as a guest on the program as well. Make sure I'm giving mm. the book title as mm. well. Uh, correct book title. I'll give it out again before we uh, get to our callers and what have you. But there is like a whole section of the library talked about where there's a whole section of the library on lynchings of black people, mostly black males. There's a Uh whole section Uh of the library on black people being denied access to swimming pools. So even if this is an Mm. accidental drowning, Mm -hmm. uh, and I mean in myriads Mm -hmm. of ways, whether they went and bombed the pool because black people were going to swim there, or they went and poured acid in the pool and that they did it in Florida. Mm. That's where you are. They went and poured out. They got that famous picture. They went and poured it. They didn't make a movie of that either. They went and poured acid uh, in the pool when the (laughs) black people uh, were trying to so-called integrate. Uh, If there's so many of those and there's so many black people who don't know how to swim because they would not allow black people Mm. uh, to swim. In fact, Mm. Richard Williams, Mm -hmm. he talks about that in his memoir, Black and White, The Way I See It. He grew up in Mississippi right down there. He said he Mm. had so many of his black classmates who are pretty close to Herbert Orsby's age who drowned, Mm. weren't allowed to go to the swimming pool, no lifeguard and all of that. So they went to local ditch creek whatever they you know whatever and accidental mm-hmm. drought so in my view fine even mm-hmm. if and i mean not that that makes it any better but i mean if this was not the clan we don't think that's what this was not white terrorism this was just an accidental drowning it is summertime in mississippi even if that's the case that too is white supremacy racism and is well documented well into the mm-hmm. 21st century I will make sure to get the actual title mm-hmm. of the book because, I mean, this is not even Gus exaggerating whole bodies of scholarship on this. And, and or not, I won't say anecdotally, but 
when you go and read Richard Williams and all of the other folks of this time period, 50s and 60s, that was a huge uh, battleground uh, of black people being mm-hmm. denied and, and literally bombing swimming pools because of black or we have to drain the entire pool or mm-hmm. the raping nigra is going to be close to mm-hmm. a bikini mm-hmm. clad. I mean, mm-hmm. yep, yep, yep. Let's see. Uh, we did have folks who dialed in uh, with questions for Dr. Hauk. Uh, we've been discussing his book, Black Bodies in the River. Uh, let's see. Retired firefighter in Florida. Hey, right there where you are, Sunshine State. He is not near Tallahassee, but either way, retired firefighter in Florida. Did you have a question uh, for Dr. Hauk? You should be with us, sir. Yes. Uh, to the guest, do you think 88-year-old Carolyn Bryant uh, needs to uh, be arrested for the uh, contribution she uh, had with the uh, kidnapping and murdering of Emmett Till. Yeah, no, I appreciate your question, sir. Um, Yeah, my good friend, uh, I was in Mississippi when Keith and his team found that document, uh, the arrest warrant in the LaFleur County Courthouse. And uh, uh, he and I have talked extensively uh, over the last three weeks about convincing a prosecutor in the Fourth Circuit uh, in LaFleur County to at least convene a grand jury. Uh, I kind of side with Dale Killinger, who presented the case for the FBI back in 2007. Dale said, at least let a jury see the evidence that we've discovered since 2007. Uh, And I'm kind of with him on this. So I'd like uh, her age. She could be 108. uh, Doesn't matter Um, if she's alive and is drawing air and we have evidence, uh, sure, let's convene a grand jury and hear that evidence. Okay. Uh, my last question is, uh, uh, I, I heard your, your uh, reply to uh, uh, the host uh, definition of the global system of racism, white supremacy. Uh, do you think do you think non-white people are less confused about the problem of racism white supremacy and if so why haven't the problem been solved um if i understand your question right sir um i think yes that non-white people uh are attuned to that system in ways that I'm not because uh, they see it every day in ways that I don't. Um, I think in our system uh, where power speaks, uh, money speaks, um, you know, I'm still a believer in uh, voting the bad guys out of office. Um, and uh, that's what that's what it's going to take, frankly, um, is, uh, to to uh, to replace that system of white supremacy. In this country, we're going to have to do it at the ballot box. Who controls voting? The ballot box. Who controls it? Uh, local election boards do. Hmm. Globally. 
uh, I'm not familiar with a global election system. I'm just, I'm a voter here in Leon County and my vote gets counted in Leon County. Um, so I'm not, I'm not, I'm not understanding your question, sir. No, well, I'm, I'm, I'm just articulating that racism, white supremacy is a global problem. And you mentioned something about voting. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's the way I see us addressing it in the short term and maybe the long term, too, is uh, is at the polls. So all non-white people have to do is just start voting and the problem would be solved. No, not at all. I think I think that's the I think that's just the beginning, sir. Okay. Thank you. You're welcome. Thank you. Much obliged, retired firefighter in Florida. I got the title wrong. Strive for accuracy. Contested waters. Contested waters uh, mm. is the name mm. of the book, uh, which is all about the uh, history of racism, white supremacy, uh, and swimming pools. Uh, I don't know if Richard Williams' uh, portion is mentioned, but uh, yeah, and both the social history of swimming pools in America. Mm full title mm. for listeners if they mm. need some how about summer reading get that one and go out to the beach uh victim of racism <laughs> in new jersey uh did you have a question for dr hauk uh you should be with us hey how you doing uh dr hauk gus um you, you mentioned you said coincel pro came later um i remember reading that um martin luther king's father was even uh being investigated uh, by the F- FBI. So, I mean, is it possible that, you know, I mean, even though COINTELPRO came later, that same practice um, has always been existent since maybe you can say since basically black people were freed in uh, 18, uh, since 1865? Yeah, I don't, sir, I don't. Thanks for your question. Um, I think the surveillance of black folks in this country uh, gets a lot of energy with J. Edgar Hoover in the early 60s. Um, and, Gus, we're going to have to Google the beginning of COINTELPRO just to kind of figure if we can come up with a date on that. Um, when when that program officially got the attorney general's signature on it. Um, but it doesn't surprise me at all that the FBI would be, um, I'm sure they investigated Dr. King's mom and brother AD, and they probably knew he had an alcohol problem and we're going to use that against him in some way, somehow. I mean, they were going to, right. They were going to leverage their power in whatever way they could for sure. Okay. Um, you also, um, just to, you know, I wasn't going to ask this question, but you said that, you know, you basically have faith in the voting process and, but you also, gave a story about mock elections mm-hmm. and also uh, black people. Some black people have been talking about a policy um, or unofficial policy of like benign neglect. And you also had a elected um, official that's also running for governor in Georgia, black lady, mm-hmm. uh, mm-hmm. Abrams. He's, yeah. she's on record in the interview saying that, she can't publicly promise that she can do anything for black people. 
with with I mean with the history that you know about mock elections and that black officials can't openly even mention that they're going to do anything to benefit black people. Um, I mean, is it really logical to just solely depend on elections to get us out of this problem? No, I, I, I agree with you. It's not solely uh, at all. One one thing, electing good people is not going to, it's not going to solve our problem. It's going to happen in K to 12 education. Um, it's going to have to happen in the workplace. It's going to have to happen with my next door neighbor. Um, right. It's, we got a lot of work to do. And, uh, and some people would call me naive in, vo- in believing that voting the right people into office is going to so- help solve some of our problems. But that's what I got to hold on to right now. Um, that's what, that's what Mrs. Hamer would tell me. Okay. Um, one more question. Uh, you spoke about, um, uh, rumors, um, as it relates to, uh, uh, civil rights leaders. Have you heard about the rumor about Malcolm X um, being a homosexual? This this was a book. The name uh, escapes me, but the author, Black Mel, um, who died, um, I want to say maybe a little bit after the book was published. Hmm. Um, what do you think about the demonization and continuous rumors of civil rights leaders while they're dead and not even able to defend themselves. Yeah, no, I appreciate your question. And, and you're right. It is the demonization. It's, it's trying to make Malcolm lesser than and his family, and he can't defend himself. And I, I once saw a document that pretends to be Malcolm's letter to Elijah Muhammad, kind of confessing that he has no feelings for Betty, his wife. And I mean, it's like, uh, you're going to pluck one document that we don't even know if it's legit and make a claim about who Malcolm X was. Um, I think we have to be really, really careful about stuff like that. And so I appreciate your question. Okay. Just to follow up, could could that also be a continuation of of like COINTELPRO style practices? Sure. Sure. And, And Sovereignty Commission practices too, you bet. Okay. Thanks a lot. Thank you, Justin. You bet. Thank you. For sure. So Dr. Kenneth O'Reilly, uh, author of Racial Matters, so the dates that he give uh, that he gives for his book title, nineteen sixty to nineteen seventy two, the FBI secret file on black America. Britannica dot com, they give the counterintelligence program date from nineteen fifty six to 1971 Hmm. which would easily encompass the time period that we're talking about and again I'm saying hey everybody mentioned Dick Gregory uh, Mm -hmm. Dr. King Ella Baker Mm -hmm. Bob Moses all of these people even the white people Mr. Lowenstein all of these people Mm. have thick cointel profiles and certainly by 1964 Oh, yeah. They've been rolling for eight years, keeping an eye on black people. So we've seen March on Washington and the Freedom Rides and all the Dr. King getting the Nobel Peace Prize. Like, oh, my God. Like, yes, I think it should be noted heavily uh, in the book. Pro is operating the same FBI agents who are coming down here for these white people probably are keeping tabs Mm -hmm. on these black people, not for protection reasons at all. Mm-mm, no, no, just the opposite. Uh, let's see. Oh, uh, the the caller 
you're on deck, Kwaku. You're on our Skype line. You're on deck. That was the one. Do you are you familiar with Dr. Marvin Dunn? I'm sorry, I'm not. Okay, uh, he's a scholar down in your area. We had him on to talk about Florida politics way back. Uh, that was 2018 uh, for the Florida gubernatorial uh, election between uh, Mr. DeSantis and Andrew. Talk about rhetoric before we get to our caller. Do you remember when Ron DeSantis said we are not going to monkey up Florida politics? Do you I remember do. that one? I do remember it like it just happened. Mm, as someone who studies language and metaphors, mm-hmm. white candidate using In that fact, sort of language. Go ahead. Yeah, no, I think somebody might even from the press have, have interviewed me about that. I, I don't remember, <laughs> but yeah, did, no, it was you big say? news down here. What did you say? I can't remember. I mean, I would I would have said the obvious thing, which is seriously, DeSantis, you're going to trot this you're going to trot this racist trope out and uh, on, on TV at a debate, seriously. Mm-hmm. And, and claim it was, you know, innocent fun. Niggers, apes, alligators, coons, possums. Easily one of my favorite moments from Mississippi. But I remember when he said that we talked to Dr. Marvin Dunn, who is a black male, by the way, <laughs> who, if you can believe uh-huh. this, he had the audacity. He planned to write a book on Andrew Gillum being the first black governor of Florida. That is hilarious. Mm. Looking black hindsight 2020. Mm. E, we, I'm in Washington State. I told her there's no way. There's, I think we even talked after the, we did, we talked after the monkeying around comment. I said, there is no way. Anything you would like to wager, house, vehicle, whatever DeSantis <laughs> all day long and bingo yeah. got to come out and do my victory dance do you think Ron DeSantis 2024 well he's certainly angling in that direction going to be awfully interesting if he declares ahead of Trump so stay tuned hmm. uh, our caller on the Skype line did you have a question for uh, Dr. David Houck in the Sunshine State uh, greetings. Uh, can I be heard? Yes, sir. Yes, you can. Greetings to uh, Gus and the guests and everybody on the line. Uh, my first question is, what what is the goal of your book and who's your intended audience? Uh, goal in the book is to try to answer a couple of questions. Uh, the first one is about, did we find black bodies in rivers during the 44 days of Goodman, Schorner, and Cheney? And then the second question is about what's the rhetorical work being done when somebody repeats the claim that eight or nine bodies were found uh, during the search for Goodman, Schwerner, and Cheney. So there's a, there's a history claim I'm interested in, then there's a rhetoric claim I'm interested in. Uh, my intended audience, I write my audience, I write my books for big audiences. I'm an academic, but I don't write for my fellow academics. I write for my dad, who's not an academic. He's an engineer, and he knows nothing about the American Civil Rights Movement, but he's learned a lot from his son. So whenever I sit down to write, uh, I sit down to write for as big an audience as I can. So um, this book's pretty short. It's got pictures. It's got captions. uh, It's got a narrative flow to it that I hope people find enjoyable. Uh, Gus, you can weigh in on this since you've read it. Uh, But, yeah, I try to write for as big an audience as I can. 
Thank you. Uh, my next question was, how does your work attempt to eliminate the system of white supremacy? I'm sorry, say that again, sir? How does your work attempt to eliminate the system of white supremacy? Uh, I don't know that that's one of my objectives. Um, I think what I'm trying to do is to show how that system of white supremacy operated in Mississippi and in the country in 1964 and how Bob Moses in particular tried to take that system of white supremacy and turn it to his own advantage. Thank you. And then my, my last question is, why has voting failed to eliminate the system of white supremacy? And what is, a, what is your suggestion for how non-white people should respond? Uh, could you repeat the first part of your question again, sir? I missed it. Why has voting failed to eliminate the system of white supremacy? Uh, boy, I wish I could answer your question for you. Um, uh, in part because we're still electing the wrong people. Um, we're electing people who don't have some of the interests of African Americans and progressive white Americans at heart. Uh, and, uh, so how are we gonna, how are we, how are we gonna beat that system? Well, it's gonna, it's gonna involve voter registration. It goes, it goes back to the book. I mean, what was Bob Moses doing down in Mississippi? He was trying to register, uh, African Americans to get a numerical superiority so that they would vote people like Aaron Henry and Ed King into office. That was his hope. Um, and that remains one of my hopes, but it's, it's a start. That's, it's not a, it's not an ending point. Uh, the, the second part to my question was how should a non, based on your response, how should non-white, he provides a, a suggestion for how non-white people should respond. Uh, I'm not sure the, who the he is in your sentence there. Based on your your response right now to the to my, uh -huh. can you provide a suggestion for how non-white people should respond? Respond to voting voting's failure to eliminate the system of white supremacy. Um. Well, I don't. I don't I'm not sure how people should respond to that. Um. I don't want to dictate a response. That's just my answer to your question. Okay, thank you. Thank you for yours. Much obliged. Our caller, uh, let's see. Oh, make sure I get in uh, my question about Fannie Lou Hamer. Uh, and I thought this was important okay. because this comes from someone who I have lots of regard for and lots of people should, should read about her. Another person talking about getting a movie, James Meredith, Fannie Lou Hamer. Lots of people from this time period mm -hmm. deserving of, you know, feature length and well done movie. Uh, but Fannie Lou Hamer, mm -hmm. you quote her. This is a little bit later in the book. I'll give out the exact page number here. Uh, but she's talking about Sh uh, Cheney Schwerner Goodman uh, after they've been found mm -hmm. and what have you. National outrage. And we're going to, you know, get somebody arrested for all of this. You write this is on page 74. Uh, uh huh. Fannie Lou Hamer reserved a special place in that kingdom, uh, in that kingdom, capital K, for the three men murdered by the Klan. These young people were so Christ-like. James Cheney, 
Andrew Goodman, and Michael Schwerner gave their lives that one day we would be free. If Christ were here today, he would be just like these young people. Direct quote. Hamer's biblically inspired translation of the three men's death, now martyrdom, would have its secular equivalents in the nation's collective memory and in Freedom Summer's historiography in the years to come. And I thought that was so powerful. Again, no, in no way am I disparaging Fannie Lou Hamer, but I said before, the religion of white supremacy. We uh, had Dr. Russell J. Hawk, J. Russell Hawkins as a guest on the program. We talked about his book, The Bible Told Them So. White people in South Carolina deliberately. Mm. You just you had some of the exact same passages. I could have swapped them out of your book, put them in his book, and just switched the state from Mississippi to South Carolina, and it would have fit perfectly. The Bible told us the Negro is below us. We're sp- then that lie separate, wink, wink. Mm. Uh, but we're supposed to be dominating the Negro, power over the Negro, the religion of white supremacy. And there are lots of passages mm-hmm. in the book that I could have picked, but I said, man. That is one right there because there are lots of black people. There are lots of Jane Cheney's in this book, black people who died unjustly by terrorism, and they do not get this sort of biblical metaphor repeatedly mm. compared to Christ and to be coming from Fannie Lou mm. Hamer. Like, wow, religion yeah. of white supremacy. Yeah. Your Your thoughts? Well, keep in mind, Gus, she was, I think that quote you're referring to, and thank you for bringing up Fannie Lou Hamer, she's one of my heroes. And uh, that quote comes from a foreword, I'm pretty sure, to a book that her good friend Tracy Sugarman had written. Tracy Sugarman was an illustrator, and he came down to Ruleville in Sunflower County, and they they became very close friends. And uh, another book for your audience to perhaps pick up, uh, we got got a big list for them, uh, Stranger at the Gates. Uh, by Tracy Sugarman. Um, he wrote it, I believe he published it in 66. But Fannie Lou Hamer writes the foreword to that book. And so it would make some sense in the context of Freedom Summer 1964, what happened to Goodman, Schwerner, and Cheney, that she would say something like that. Um, uh, so just a little bit more context for where that quote comes from. Um, I think... It would be. You know, I'd love to ask Mrs. Hamer if she, if what she knew about Moore and D. and Orsby and Emmett Till and um, her her uh, her understanding of the bodies in the river claim. I'd love to talk to her about that. Um, but yeah, the the point I'm trying to make there is that our country, in its memory products, its film, its landscape architecture, its it's naming practices. Um, we've we've made those three men Christ-like, and I'm not trying to say that they don't deserve being commemorated. Uh, quite the contrary, they do. Um, but the extent to which other people then are being forgotten, um, not named, um, the history being distorted and poorly written, um, and that's I guess where I'll end. I'll end my interview with you tonight. Hmm. If I can borrow. Uh... One quick question before you uh, depart us, Dr. Hauk. 
Uh, I thought this was a really, just because we've seen this so many times uh, with a number of our different guests and what have you, you write at the very end, this is about uh, going to some of the burial or attempting, I'll say. Uh, this is on 123, mm-hmm. right? Uh, I wondered, why would this homemade memorial point south? Why didn't it advertise itself just a bit more prominently? The answer arrived in an email from David Ridgen, R-I-D-G-E-N, a few weeks later. The sign had already been stolen and or destroyed three times. Somehow this seemed sadly fitting. Even in death, someone was trying to render Charles Moore and Henry D. invisible and deny them a privately public commemoration on the landscape just two nameless black bodies murdered in 1964 somewhere in Mississippi to give the two young men a name and a place a very humble history and a memory was simply too much for some 50 years and beyond I'm just skipping down a little bit it says uh, you're trying to go to the gravesite it says a hang a right on McNair Road just yards from the Mayship Memorial in Meadville and then a quick left on Kirby Road mm-hmm. since we are here why not pay our respects at the cemetery behind Mount Olive Church in the tiny hamlet of Kirby both men I'd read were buried nearby despite our best efforts we could not locate either man's grave I was later informed that the location of both headstones is a tightly guarded secret known only by family even in death the bodies of Henry D. and Charles Moore are shrouded in mystery and potential danger submerged somewhere in the clay soil of Franklin County. I thought this was important because we mentioned Emmett Till. Keith Beauchamp talked about this where his uh, different memorials have been used for target practice, mm. stolen. Yep. They had to get one newly constructed that's got all this special uh, protection and security around it. In fact, we heard this with Stephen Lawrence on the other side of the world, a black teenager who was stabbed to death in London in the 1990s, and they put a memorial up the spot where he was stabbed to death by a gang of racists. They did the same thing. His mom came on the program, said they will smear feces on it, break glass mm. on it, all the rest of it. Mm. I said, man, Fred Hampton, talk about victim of Pro. They used mm-hmm. this, his memorials and headstones for target practice. This seems to be an important part of white culture worldwide. Mm-hmm. What is the significance mm-hmm. of this? That was my, as you are exiting, Dr. Howe question. Yeah, well, it's hugely significant because there's a whole bunch of people in Mississippi who can't stand yet in 2022 to have Emmett Till on their landscape. Uh, my good friend and colleague at the University of Kansas, Dave Tell, wrote a wonderful book, if your readers are interested, called Remembering Emmett Till. And he looks at each one of the memorials to Emmett in Mississippi and goes into the archives to find out how those uh, memorials got created. Um, but your larger points, a really important one, is that uh, we uh, we continue to deface, we, and I think you're right, white people, we uh, continue to deface uh, signs that are um, 
I mean, David Ridgen said it to me, you know, he's the one, he's the one I asked about, Hey, do you know where the graves are? Because I'd love to just pay my respects. And he said, I'd love to tell you, but I can't, you're not family. I understand. Um, he didn't know me. He can't trust me. Um, and black bodies are still imperiled even in death. Yeah, that's right. And that's just, that's just hard and sad. White lives matter again just i guess for contrast i could not imagine someone having to say we have to do do the family members of uh goodman and schwerner do they have to keep the burial sites hidden No, probably not. But I think they're also in private mausoleums. So I don't, I don't know that we could access them. I do know James Cheney's grave in Meridian uh, has been defaced many times. So much, so much so that it has a steel structure around it now to protect it. Mm, mm, mm. Yeah. I'm disgusted. What a note to end on. Woo, man! Yeah. Truthful. We have been chatting up. Uh, Dr. David Hauck, uh, his book, like literally just came out, Black Bodies in the River, Searching for Freedom Summer. I guess I'll be a little bit, uh, I can't even say joyful, but at least put the names again. Charles Eddie Moore, Henry Hezekiah D. Herbert Orsby, H-E-R-B-E-R-T-O-R-S-B-Y. Put a name on it. Strive for accuracy. That is one thing we can do to work against racism. Uh, much obliged for sharing a bit of your uh, summer Monday with us, Dr. Hauk. Gus, I've appreciated it. And I really appreciate your I've never had somebody interview me and quote from my book. And you're the first. And I really appreciate that because us historians love interviews who do accuracy, who embody that and put it into practice. So I really appreciate you spending time uh, talking about my book and asking me such good questions. And uh, yeah, look forward to uh, the days ahead and see how the book gets received. Oh, for sure. Oh, that's right. We got one of the early interviews. Have to see what points other people see if other people bring up the Cointel Pro because man, that is, if, if it wasn't for that, like I would have much higher marks, but that is like a major, like, oh my gosh, yeah, you got to have something about that input learned a lot i'll look to see what other people have to say and why talk to an author if you're not going to read the book Jeez, right <laughs> much obliged i cannot wait in fact buddy wait until i get to read the effects of rhetoric and the rhetoric of effects Woo. looking forward listeners will hear me <laughs> nag them about that too enjoy your evening dr Hout. it has been a hoot all right take care yes sir yes sir thanks so much Context of White Supremacy, the book again, Black Bodies in the River, Searching for Freedom Summer. I learned quite a bit, even though it was not. Oh, I forgot about Eric McGinnis. Uh, I should have asked him that before he left. Eric McGinnis, that's who I wanted to ask him about. Man, I read this book. I knew I had so much information because when I saw he did so much about language, I was fascinated by that. And it's like, oh, man, that's going to take up time. We could have been talking about other things. But, man, I was reading this book at Green Lake. This was last weekend. Beautiful Saturday. I'm out at the lake, sunny. I had vegan pizza that was amazing in my hammock. 
I'm reading this book. Grizzly. Corpses popping up, teenagers, even if it is an accidental drowning, that's still, you know, white supremacy racism. And then uh, what we started with, uh, Charles Moore, Henry D., black teens get killed for no reason. All of this super, you know, grisly to be reading about. I stopped reading this book, Black Bodies in the River. I take a break and I'm preparing for the program on Wednesday and I'm reading about Eric McGinn. Oh, I should have had the sound clip ready to play. Let me see if I can pull. If I can pull it up easily, I'll do it now just so that I can get everybody prepared for uh, Wednesday, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific, because I didn't know who Eric McGinnis was. Uh, same way I said with almost all the victims that we talked about today. I didn't except for, you know, uh, James Cheney and those two white boys. I knew them, but most of the other folks, I didn't really know who they were, but. I didn't know who Eric McGinnis was, and this is not ancient history. Uh, Eric McGinnis is like 90s, uh, a few years before O.J. Simpson trial, and what have you. Like, they got video footage and what have you of all of this. Uh, I was, I guess I did feel a little bit, you know, some type of way about not knowing about this case, but I stopped reading Black Bodies in the River, and I switched, because they have documentaries and what have you about Eric McGinnis. I, I switched to the documentary. Oh, I don't have it in... Uh, which oh is it is it that I, I think I do oh I do have it let's hear it let's hear it let's hear it let's see if I can tell you who Eric McGinnis is so we can be prepped uh, for Wednesday let's see the audio hopefully will be uh, tolerable because I did not plan to play this but I, I was going to bring this up with our guest just because it, it makes the point that he was making in the book we should be accurate we should put names he, I don't think he wrote this book to castigate individuals who were saying, man, they found all these unidentified bodies in the river and eight of them, 12 of them and all the rest when there's no evidence that suggests that even from black people who were present, Stokely Carmichael and such, and the John Lewis people at the time. Uh, but there were black people, plenty of them who were terrorized, killed. We talked about many of them uh, this evening. Eric McGinnis was found in the river, literally, under suspicious circumstances. St. Joseph, Michigan, 1991. Like, it was a stunning moment to go from reading this book and them talking about these fun and looking for bodies and all that, black bodies and all the rest, to then go to this, like, wow. And he even references the Atlanta Chalmers. It was right there. I was going to ask about Joseph G. Christopher, too, if we'd had time, because he talked about tangentially he mentions the book Evidence of Things Not Seen and James Baldwin, where they're also talking about black male bodies being found in the water, Tallahoochee River in Georgia and Atlanta. Uh, and that book all about the Atlanta child murders, which I've read studying that case. Can't mention the Atlanta child murders and not talk about Joseph G. Christopher. Anyway, so let's get uh, Eric McGinnis. Let's hear Eric McGinnis, since that's very relevant to what we talked about today. And then we'll get folks. Uh, thoughts on what they heard from our guest. Let's see. Oh, I just had it right there. Was oh, there we go. All righty. So this is Eric McGinnis preparing for our program on Wednesday, which is breaking a rule. I totally forgot about breaking a rule. Hopefully, we'll have something instructive uh, for the risk taking that's going down on Wednesday. Uh, but here we go. Let's see. We are learning new information about the events that led to the killing of a Benton Harbor teenager 30 years ago. 
The state attorney general's office releasing new details from what it uncovered in an investigation over the last six months. And News 8's David Horak is live in our Kalamazoo studio with the details. David. Good evening, guys. First off, in this nine-page report, the AG's office determined that there were three suspects in the killing of Eric McGinnis. Attorney General Dana Nessel says there were pivotal interviews with people who witnessed the events on that night in 1991 that changed this case from a drowning to a homicide. And she believes race was a key part in the killing. In the report, the Attorney General's office details what happened the night of May 17, 1991. They named the main suspect as Curtis Pitts. Witnesses say he kicked 16-year-old Eric McGinnis on the pier, knocking him into the St. Joseph River. Witness interviews conducted by state investigators now and local police then say Pitts referred to black people by the N-word. This case, clearly, there were racial elements to it. There, there's no question about that. Pitts, the main suspect, died by suicide in 2003. A second suspect, Theodore Warmbean, died in 2007. And a third suspect, whose name was not included in the report, will not be charged due to a lack of evidence. Even if these are people that we can't prosecute, they're no longer alive, or in some cases not on homicides, but other kinds of cases, the statute of limitations have run. And, and that's the thing, you know, that case involved some other actors who may have committed some other crimes not homicide where the statute of limitations has run. However, Attorney General Dana Nessel is open to other avenues in bringing justice for the family. I think that it's worth exploring other ways to, to view the case and to see was there an injustice that was done here uh, and was it intentional. McGinnis's family and their attorney are calling for the Department of Justice to look into this case on the grounds of the recently passed Emmett Till Anti-Lynching Act. Nessel says she welcomes the idea. Are there other actors at play? Why, why this case was never resolved? I don't know the answer to that question. And if the Department of Justice can provide that answer, then I think it's a good thing. So far, we have yet to hear back from the U.S. Department of Justice if they will pursue this case on any grounds, including that of the Emmett Till Anti-Lynching Act. We're live inside of our Kalamazoo studio. David Horak, News 8. Absolutely incredible context of white supremacy like right and exact um, contrary to popular opinion I normally don't even do assessments or what have you just feel like we've been terrible the whole year and what have you or we certainly have not been effective enough in any regard haven't been effective enough promotion follow us on twitter at until justice only for constructive purposes if you're into ADOS at all do not follow at email contact me for any reason ever only needed for constructive purposes uh, and really we don't have to talk at all <laughs> just check out the content or what have you if you have a question need some information I will do my best to help you as soon as possible this is a urgent po uh, problem so I do try to respond if people have questions and what have you but yeah if it's just like you disagree and want to grouse and argue and what have you Victims guaranteed qualified, you certainly should be able to find something better with your time and energy than to have disagreements with other victims of racism, right? All of that said, man, like this calendar year, we have done excellent, like timely things that I look at, like, man, 
we just talked about all of that <clears throat> with the Atlanta child murders being connected to Buffalo I kept mentioning that talked about the Bone Homes explosion and what have you evidence of things not seeming to be quoted in this book talking about the Atlanta child murders oh, right where we are supposed to be and then all that talk Emmett Till this happened in Mississippi we've been talking about the Emmett Till anti-lynching bill so-called all year long literally we've been talking about that all year long Emmett Till comes up today I didn't even ask the question I knew retired firefighter was going to ask about Carolyn Bryant Dunham I said oh this is a program where it for sure should be asked because we're talking about Mississippi and it's right in the time period Emmett Till is mentioned in the book like oh yeah if anybody like this guy Dr. Houck is not going to be oh who Carolyn Bryant oh I don't know what do you, ooh, I never heard Emmett who em, ooh, no he is going to know these folks like let's get to it and he did I think he gave a quick precise no buckets of words answer metaphor that said uh, man I uh, I think it's so important in terms of reviewing local history so more folks uh, will know this information but lo- us being in lockstep not just knowing this information but wow to be able to put this in some sort of context so for me not just the Atlanta Buffalo connection was right there I was going to ask him about Joseph D. Christopher if we had more time but man to do all that talking about Emmett Till I just told you I have no problem confessing ignorance I'm still learning I didn't know about really any of the victims we talked about today except for Herbert Orsby and if you'd asked me to give me his name I could I would have had to get like hey, let me get my phone let me get my computer and then I could have like oh yeah, yeah 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 that's got it got it got it spelled correctly and everything I did not know Eric McGinnis at all at all never like if you even that one like you could have probably given me a little bit of time like who Eric McGinnis like what what is this never heard I've never been to Michigan either so I mean it's not like I am supposed to be an expert on Michigan history but I mean really blackmail drives under suspicious circumstances in the 90s this is really close to when I think this is the same year 91 this is the same year this is after the beating of Rodney King and is this people don't even know about this people didn't know about this case and then they come back and find evidence 2021 like recent they come back and find evidence like oh wait a minute this guy was killed called a nigra and everything like whoa I thought blackmail privilege did everybody know about this case for real they got whole books well not whole books but he is a huge subject of whole books that talk about racism white supremacy uh, in Michigan anyway at this moment Gus becomes aware of Eric McGinnis the whole reason we're talking about this now and breaking one of the rules here at the cows and having a non-white guest on the program on Wednesday not supposed to be doing but we're doing it why I want to know one I want to ask I get that's one question right there do you know who Eric McGinnis is another question 
what's your definition of racism? Got to do it the other way. See with this person, what their understanding is talking to a young person too. other question. We're talking to a non-white person, victim of racism. The area of Michigan where they were hanging, where they were victimized, terrorized, their attempted family told them, Hey, don't go hang out in that part of town. Dangerous. I need to know like exactly what was said and context. I learned about this event in Michigan, this young black person being terrorized. I learned about this. We talked about this on the very same broadcast where we had a listener dial in and say, hey, how do you share information with attempted family about racism, white supremacy, life saving information? We've heard this. In fact, a number of reports where young black people, when I say young, like black teens, where they end up in some sort of sundown town or really dangerous white supremacist environment where it's not a whole lot of non-white people, if any, and they're around a lot of their so-called white friends and they end up dead, drugged, harmed in some way. It's tons of reports like that where we're and specifically going to racially restricted regions is tons of reports white but they got whole episodes of unsolved mysteries about that where uh black young it's just what i just said young non-white people going to an area where they're the only non-white person and then they end up dead under suspicious circumstances so i want to know exactly what did his attempted family what did they say did they give names? Was it general? Did they give some of the history of this area? Did they have literature, news clippings? Like, I need as much detail as possible. Was this said regularly? Did they call it racism? Did you have white friends? Like, I just need a lot of detail about what was this conversation like? Because this victim said, hey, I love everybody. You know, they told me this, but you know, I go, I hang out and all the rest of it, like, wow what's your reflection on like did they give you bad advice should you have listened do you regret going to this area? like I just have lots of questions trying to understand and hopefully for the folks who were talking about that how do we share this information with our families we can see now what did they tell him in my view this is we need to do better that's how I'm processing this whatever they told him that goes in the we got to do way better. Let's make for improvement. So did they give specific names? Eric McGinnis? Because I mean, hey, it's their documentaries. Eric McGinnis died six minutes from the place where I guessed on Wednesday where he was born. That's what I mean about local history. We're talking about Mississippi tonight. We got guests born in Mississippi. Ripley other areas I've been to Jackson you have to be a PhD expert on all of this retired firefighter in Florida uh, the lynching of uh, what is it Char Claude Neal made him consume his genitals we talked about that delectable Negro expert on all of that Dr. Henry and Henrietta Moore 
got to be expert on all of that. So our offspring, they are aware. We got listeners in Georgia. I got relatives and what have you. There's no way you're going to be uninformed about Forsyth. No way. That's just not going to happen. Wherever you happen to be at, you use local history to teach about white supremacy, racism, and even to help explain this is why when you look around, when you drive around the city where we live, where our relatives live, why things look the way they are, this is why so you can be more informed. But that's why we're breaking the rule. I am I'm fascinated on so many levels. Again, number one, this is a racially restricted reach. So we got another incident of a non-white, young non-white person voluntarily going to a racially restricted region, region being terrorized. Further, and I didn't, we didn't get to ask the question today. I had it written down. Sometimes I defer to let you all ask that question. I know so many of y'all asked it. Our caller in Michigan, she asked that so many times. So I let her, whomever else, I did have it written down. I even had, uh, amendments to add after that question but there was so much content what can you do anywho uh, but this is that's when for Wednesday keep this in mind we'll see how much information he knows about this town did he know about Eric McGinnis what did his attempted family members tell him and then looking back should he have listened to more just so much I'm looking forward to and then just hearing about the the terrorism what happened to him and all the rest of it. Lots to discuss, but that'll be Wednesday. Normal program time, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. I cannot emphasize, we lost a little bit of time this evening, just me getting my questions in at the beginning about rhetoric and metaphors. That is such a crucial component of white supremacy racism. I mean, that could have been a whole program because I mean, why I would have immediately I am so not interested in Fannie Lou Hamer's metaphors and all that. Like if you want the people who really get things done, they go out and use those metaphors and bam, the whole state of Mississippi is lit up with crosses. That's what I'm talking about. Dr. King goes out and does his metaphors and what have you. Matter of fact, I mentioned Michael Thelwell, he was a guest on our program, castrated giant. He said, hey, Dr. King gave that speech. Most of the folks who were present, the sound system was so bad, we couldn't even hear what was said. What? Huh? What did he say? Huh? Huh? Oh, yeah. We play, yeah right, uh-huh, uh-huh. He said something. Okay. Sure hope it was worth clapping because I'm, I'm clapping like a fool. Clarity. Strive for accuracy. Precision. Anywho, but yeah, if we had more time, I would have talked a lot more about language that is so important, critical. Uh, might even be worth checking out his book. I'll give out that. Or you can just lo- go go to the library, College University Library and research. Just put in his name, David Houck, H-O-U-C-K. And look at some of the titles that comes up because he looks at like presidential rhetoric. He talked about the book that he wrote about uh, Emmett Till, the other book, The Effects of Rhetoric and the Rhetoric of Effects. Oh my God. Language. And you even, did you hear the faculty? They have almost 30 faculty members in this department. Three black females, 
all the rest black males. It's not what he said. No black male privilege in this here program. All we heard about was uh, black males not being employed in his department at all and then dead black males. That's all we got. And James Meredith. I love James Meredith. No movie for James Meredith. Uh, and that will be the last thing that I'll get to folks who dialed in if they have thoughts. Wish we'd had more time because we'd got that question about who was more informed. Like, man, I wanted to hear his response to that. Uh, he importantly he mentions these are the major films that have come out about the so-called civil rights movement long walk home Whoopi goldberg's in that one uh malcolm x denzel the butler <sighs> incidentally even the funny dr well if i had really been on it on it i just was going back and listening to dr Wellsing her 20th visit August 2013 middle of what I just said 50 year anniversary march on Washington the film the butler came out at that time she mentioned that film and she said it is a shame they have this uh, scene of conflict uh, with the family and the dad gets all angry and it's you know so I think it smacks I have not seen the butler I have not seen the butler and I will never see the butler. I will never view anything Lee Daniels does. Why is that? Because I saw, uh, I think it's called shadow boxer with the great, one of the greatest actors ever Cuba's Cuba Gooding jr. So I mean, Hey, if you put Cuba Gooding jr. In something and made me want to vomit, like, Oh, Shadow He has Cuba Gooding jr. In some sort of tragic, sexual gutter sex arrangement with his white stepmother and he has Monique doing crack also in a tragic arrangement with a white man that shadow boxer the end what else did Lee Daniels do he did uh... oh it's with Kevin Bacon it's about some pedophile oh my god yeah I didn't like Precious. Uh, I couldn't even finish watching Precious. Like I had the audacity. It was a victim of racism. Ooh, Gus, it'll be great. It'll be counter racist viewing. We come watch Precious. Ooh, it'll be great. I'm thinking I'm going to sit and have dinner and watch this abomination with her. I think I watched about 40 minutes and was about to be not like literally I was about to vomit. I had to get up and I had to move to a totally different room where I couldn't hear it. I couldn't see it like, oh, my God, anti-blackness. I will never watch a Lee Daniels film, but the butler Mississippi burning, which we heard sound clip today. One of my favorite moments in the film, niggers, apes, alligators, coons and possums, which is based on what was said in real life and is mentioned in the very book we talked about today. Uh, Ghosts of Ole Miss, Whoopi Goldberg again talking about the assassination of Medgar Evers, uh, Rosa Parks story with uh, Angela Bassett, and Freedom Song with Danny Glover. I felt like there was one more movie in there that I, did, I was just thinking like, oh, maybe that one should be in there too. And I said, well, oh, I mentioned it already today. I mentioned it already today. If you're really listening closely, you're like, oh, that's the one. But I already mentioned it today, and I said, oh, maybe that should be included in the civil Jackie Robinson is that it Jackie Robinson maybe that one Jackie Robinson should maybe be in there too anyway 
if I don't know why Whoopi Goldberg is so cool where she gets to be in two Spike Lee talked about how it was so difficult the financing to finish that film uh, I think Oprah Winfrey and some other folks that we routinely call like Coons and what have you uh, stepped in to help him with the financing to finish Malcolm X uh, he wanted to do a movie on Jackie Robinson. He talked about how it was very difficult. White people obstructed him in both of those endeavors. But Whoopi Goldberg is in two of these. Uh, the Freedom Summer with these white boys. Rosa Parks in a very sanitized version uh, of Rosa Parks. Like, it's so limited in terms of the scope of what is talked about. Again, where is the James Meredith movie? Like, what he endured at Ole Miss that is must see TV. Fannie Lou Hamer. That I mean, it's tons of the Orangeburg Massacre in South Carolina. It's the Deegans of Defense. Like, man, I totally forgot. It's so many things that could be talked about uh, with pride, black self-respect, and local history. Now, we got to do fifteen thousand films on. Uh, Cheney, Cheney and those two white boys and show them all they said Mississippi Burning is like the most popular civil rights movie of all time it won an Academy Award and everything like for real a total lie anyway I'll get to the folks who dialed in uh, that is huge I would say that is on par you all can give your thoughts but that is on par coin Dr. Francis Cress Welsing. Let me get that paragraph again. I'm so embarrassed that I did not ask Dr. Kenneth O'Reilly when he was with us because this is footnoted. The section that I'm going to reread about how allegedly they helped to crack so-called this case about who killed James Cheney and these two white boys. Kenneth O'Reilly in his book Racial Matters that Dr. Welsing said must read FBI, FBI Inspector Joseph so oh, I just want to skip to the good part the dredging process turned up several black corpses and parts thereof including a torso clad in a court t-shirt that would be again Herbert Orsby that they're talking about maybe he was in t-shirt maybe not many agents missed vacation time and only a few got home for Christmas they overlooked nothing missed no angle we also have a long line of individual Negro women with whom the sheriff has had sexual relations the director, J. Edgar Hoover, told the president, we are digging into that more for persuasive evidence on him when we bring him in so we can put pressure on him. That is never discussed when it's time to talk about Freedom Summer in 1964. Like, never discussed. So, I mean... Man, I am so glad that I read that and I wish I had asked him about that explicitly way back in 2009, but can't cover everything on the program. But I mean, that is right. That like having again, these are white historians, white experts like, hey, you should not have to be. What were the dates on? In my opinion, it should not go that way. It should be. You should know about this. That's right up there with these folks not knowing about Joseph G. Christopher. And again, that's the pattern where white people do not include this type of pertinent information. Now, if it's that this people just don't know about Quintel, or he did say you know about it, says he, that's eh, eh. <laughs> like, if you know about Quintel Pro, like I said, 
every black person that he mentioned, even some many of the folks who are not of value. I'm going to tell you what, when I read this book, that didn't even stand out to me as that significant. It is hugely because nobody else says that, that what? That's part of how we crack this case. All right, you're going to brush Sheriff Rainey. You're going to give it up. Don't let us bring in some of these nigger women and tell how you've been sleeping around. You're married to a white woman. One with your white woman, when she finds out that you've been getting these nigger belly warmers. What? What? That's not in Mississippi burning. That is hugely important. So shame on Gusty for my making a bigger note. But what at the time and what I still to this day thought was hugely important from that book. And I did ask him about, hey, even in 1963 and before, if you're classified as black, they had black people who had $33 in their bank account and they were conducting surveillance on them. I was stymied when I read that more so than that passage that I just read again. $33. I don't know how many guns you can smuggle. Even 1964, $33 goes a long way. I don't think you're going to fill up a flatbed truck with $33 worth of munitions. I could be wrong. I think you could probably get that in the trunk of a beetle station wagon. $33. We got FBI tabs on you. That's how I, in addition to, I've seen some of these people's files. Bob Moses, for sure. We got a file on a thick one, probably. Stokely Carmichael, I've seen that one. Not all of it, but I mean, eh. Ella Baker, we got files on all these folks and the white people. So, yeah, I think that one is pretty big. Like anytime we have white people who are not informed about this and we have to be informed about this reason why Dr. Kenneth O'Reilly way back in 2009. And again, people who read Dr. Welsing's work. That's page one of her book. If I had been next to my library, I would have read that today. Gus T knows about that and had Dr. Kenneth O'Reilly on the program because the grandsister, she said reading is more important than watching television. One book that she said to read in addition to the code book, Dr. Kenneth O'Reilly, Racial Matters, the FBI's secret file on black America from 1960 to 1972. She didn't just say read it. She said, you shouldn't talk about racism until you've read that book. Our guest said he owned the book but hadn't read it. Uh, the burial. I just make sure I get that in and then we'll folks who died in if you'll have thoughts. Man, the desecration of black burial sites. He said James Cheney. I have to go back to double check. I think he was 20 at the time he was killed. James Cheney, they have to put all of these metal barriers and what have you because white terrorists continue. He's been dead since 1964. Almost 60 years. And they got to go defile his gravesite. 
what does it mean to be white that's not in the line that's as I said that's Fred Hampton that's James Cheney that's Emmett Till that's Stephen Lawrence and I think that what is really important not that I'm placing more value on it it's important because retired firefighter asked that question or emphasized global Stephen Lawrence was stabbed to death matter of fact that's two years because that was 1993 if my memory is accurate so that's Eric McGinnis was 91 Stephen Lawrence was 93 stabbed to death in the streets of London and they do the exact same he wasn't a drug peddler he wasn't a rapist he wasn't out talking about counter racism either trying to go home stabbed to death by white racist terrorists his mother Baroness Doreen Lawrence two time guest on the cows she wrote in her book that we talked about and she talked with us about how what I said they will come and put dog feet poor white paint on the memorial spot where he was killed where a matter of fact where he collapsed and died they put a memorial at that spot they will come and smash glass on it rub dog feces in it pour white paint on it they put up a center in his honor she said they come and break the windows at the center and they have to replace them at their expense they've been doing this for years she said nobody can do anything about it what does it mean to be white forget arrest Carol and Bryant Donham we just played the report they stole one of the Emmett Till memorials and then the other he was nodding the whole time not ignorant about anybody yep that's sure enough yep you're right that happened you have they had to put same thing special bulletproof extra security enforced reinforcement what what that's another one that you can think whom oh wait a minute, wait a minute since we did mention Forsyth that is also in Patrick Phillips book Blood at the Root he was a guest on the program in 2016 one of the points that stuck out there they kicked the black people out purged them no niggers here racially restricted region and then race soldiers went to the black cemetery and they took the headstones from the deceased black people and used them to make a footpath for white residents in Forsyth County asked Patrick Phillips white author about that when he was on the program in 2016 that is white culture that's another one in fact when I say that white people don't think their brains don't work the way that non-white people do I don't know any non-white people email and make a lie out of it. In fact, that's nothing to brag about, right? So you could email untiljustice at gmail.com and keep it anonymous. I do not know any black people. They make pilgrimages. We got to find Pitchfork Ben Tillman's gravesite. They're going to pour black paint on it and urinate on it and bring dog feces. Ugh. I don't know any black people 
we gotta go find the killers of Emmett Till, find their gravesite and urinate on it and throw black paint on it. Ugh. Any number of racists throughout the world. I do not know any black people. That's what they do for fun. That's what they do in their free time. And this becomes a generational activity because it can't be the same white person or group of white people for 60 years has been going out and doing this. That can't be. So this has got to be some sort of generational father and son grandpa granddaughter grandson we've been going out and shooting that old Emmett Till for decades now what does and Fred Hampton and James Cheney children that'll be the last thing I'll say I think out of the four people that I mentioned James Cheney is the only one who was above the age of 20 and I think he was 20 on the dot everybody else Stephen Lawrence 17 and it's old Fred Hampton I think he got and I think he was barely there I think he was 20 I have to double check double check because accuracy is important but out of all of those I think two of them teens 17 for Stephen Lawrence 14 for Emmett Till I think Fred Hampton was 20 I think James Cheney might have been 20 as well how much damage could you do in a lifetime to warrant we got to go and terrorize your corpse and burial site for the next century? Retired firefighter, victim in New Jersey, Kwaku. Any of you all have thoughts on what you heard from uh, Dr. David Houck? Yeah, Gus. Um, yeah, I was, I was, uh, I was kind of, I was, I was, I was, I was focusing in on uh, when he was talking about the uh, alleged Muslim gun runner. Um, and, and you know what? It's just, it's just, it's just amazing how white people, you know, criminalize criminalize black males to the point where criminality has become like normal in 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 in, in some cases. Um, you know, I mean, you, you push a population to the margins of society, then you ridicule them for, you know, basically becoming with what you always push them to be, you know, you know, just, you know, as Millie Fuller would say, you know, you, you turn black males into monstrosities. You know, just like the joke about black people being stupid, you, you know, being illiterate, but you hid books from them. It, 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 it's, it's just that continuous cruel uh, joke. I mean, it, it's just a cruel joke. You know, it's, it's, again, like you said, you know, we don't, you can't, you know, black people don't think like them. Don't think like white men white woman, white child. Um, it was real interesting when a uh, retired firefighter, you know, asked him, you know, what, what do he think will get us out of this? And he said, uh, elections, voting. He brought up uh, Ron DeSantis, and, and, you know, and his, his monkey comment. 
Um, he gave um, examples of mock elections, but you know, I'm, I'm pretty sure this is this is a sharp white man, and he believes that voting is going to get black people. Or I, I guess when he talks about elections, he's also talking about white people voting for uh, good people in a system of white supremacy. I mean, we had Barack Obama for eight years. Um, this was constructive to me because I'm definitely, uh, soon when you mentioned the, uh, the book, uh, um, uh, Racial Matters, I'm already put it in, um, you know, I already order it, but unfortunately I, I have to, uh, if I'm not mistaken, it's, it's uh, Kenneth O'Reilly, a white man? I was fumbling with my audio, sorry. Yes, Dr. Kenneth O'Reilly, of course. Why would, well, <laughs> yes, <laughs> all the people that I know who've written like feature-length books, uh, about Quaintel Pro, I'm not saying that everybody who uh, has that no black people have, but the people that I'm aware of, all of them are classified as white who've written about Quaintel Pro in depth. Yes. Okay, so I'm, I'm, I'm unfortunately, I'm, I'm going to give uh, Kenneth O'Reilly, you know, some of my hard-earned money to uh, read this book, and, and especially if uh, Francis Cress Wilson uh, suggests it. Um, I'm definitely going to read it, and um, I, you know, and, was, and you brought up Frances Chris Wilson, and I just was talking to, about her and Millie Fuller, um, VGQ. Uh, I just, I just as late have just found it so offensive when I hear Frances Chris Wilson and uh, Millie Fuller's um, intellect or some of their uh, verbiage, you know, used, but you know, on social media and, and, you know, with the name calling and everything and people talking about the cold and being on cold and, you know, just, just, I, I, I just basically suggested, I said, I, I really don't think um, Francis Cress Wilson will be okay with all this name calling that you guys are doing. And if I'm, I'm sure that you guys haven't read nearly Fuller's work, because there's independent in the title, so this doesn't have to be a group code. He's talking about, you know, a code that you can, you know, basically implement with, you know, amongst yourself. Um, but anyway, the the guest, um, he he. I mean, it was it was it was real interesting. I think I'm also going to pick up um, uh, his book, and even with Cointel Pro. Um, I mean. It, I mean, do we have to even label it? I mean, it's 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 terrorism, you know. I mean, Wilmington. I mean, Wilmington. Um, um, the 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 coup in Wilmington to overthrow black officials. I mean, that right there, Cointel Pro, um, convict leasing. You know, surveillance of what black people are doing. You know, uh, monitoring their movement. You know, doing what uh, the author of uh, Sundown Towns called the Nadir. Uh, that period, you know, just just the constant monitoring of black people. So, COINTELPRO has always existed, and it, it's you know, and it's under 
it's a, it should be basically labeled under its original uh, name, which is just basically white terrorism, you know? So um, definitely. But I'm definitely going to pick up that book, Gus, and um, I'm definitely going to uh, read it, uh, Racial Matters. I found the passage Dr. Welsing has in her book. Uh, this is like I said, this is at the very beginning of the book before you get to any of the essays, ball games, any of that. She says, "No persons who classify themselves as white living in the area referred to as the United States of America or for that matter in any other area of the world would presume to tell any black person or any non-white person what racism is or is not until they have completely read Kenneth O'Reilly's Racial Matters, the FBI's secret file on Black America, 1960 to 1972. No black person should discourse on racism or deny the conspiratorial dimensions of the local and global system of racism until he she has read racial matters the grandcester reading is more important than watching television system that's another one of the big takeaways in that book system system this was not just j edgar hoover this was an entire system of individuals classified as white who went out to serve the system of white supremacy and disrupt all manner of black people even if they just had 33 dollars in the bank other folks with commentary they wanted to make sure they got in Yes, sir. Uh, I decided to uh, change uh, change up the the traditional question uh, on the basis of assuming that this white person was going to going to uh, uh, acknowledge that non-white people are less confused about racism. Uh, therefore, the next, the next part of the question was, well, why haven't non-white people solved the problem if they know so much about it, so much more about it than anybody else, why we haven't solved it? And, uh, all he can come up with was uh, voting, uh, what I call professional voting. Uh, and uh, so I'm, I still would like to make it, make my question, a, a, my questioning of a white person on that subject a, more concise to whereas they would either not say anything at all or have to come up with the uh the answer you know more more of a answer to whereas 
they would say that white people know more about racism, white supremacy. That's why they uh, control it. Uh, and and they've established it, they've uh, expanded it, they have maintained it, and they have refined it uh, and give some articulation on that subject. Uh, I'm still working on on how I can form a question in that light so I would get that as a, uh, as a reaction from a white person. Uh, but... Uh, <laughs> The whole idea of talking about voting, and he was only and most he was only speaking about voting in a regional standpoint, meaning I think what Mr. Fuller calls the Northwestern Hemisphere, uh, and that's it. And that's why I mentioned about uh, you know well a reminder to him anyway that he did agree to that racism, white supremacy is a global problem. And I notice, I notice when when you when you go there, even with some non-white people, but mainly with white people, they their 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 way out would say, "Well, I don't know that much about what goes on outside of 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 uh, this place." So many uh, ignorant white people, quote unquote, uh, you know, when it comes to subject matter that goes beyond the quote-unquote continental United States. <laughs> the place that's called the continental United States of America. Uh, they don't know anything at all. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but, uh, yeah, I was just thinking about that. Uh, I'm going to work on that even more. That's it. Much obliged, retired firefighter in Florida. Uh, the voting response, especially being good in good old Florida, land of Ron DeSantis, potential candidate for the White House in two years. Uh, and in fact, a number of the veterans of the very organization that we talked about, SNCC, or one of the organizations that we talked about, SNCC, some of their uh, founding members, James Foreman, in his book, uh, making of black revolutionaries he said that and many black people not all but a number of black people especially from that time period they also thought oh yes voting that's what'll do it that's what'll do they haven't let us vote and they you know it killed us to keep us from voting so yes that's all we need to do get in and vote the correct people into office vote the bad people out of maybe run for office ourselves hey that's what'll do and then it took some people sometimes oh man that's not no and I mean, certainly, as you said, at this late date, like President Obama, Andrew Gillum, all the rest of it, like, OK, yes, we have seen that that is not going to particularly on a global scale like. Eh, eh. Uh, let's see. The who's more informed, hopefully we'll get an opportunity uh, to just even though we have a non-white guest, maybe we can ask him too, just to see. But. I hope you'll get a chance to ask more white people that uh, promptly. Uh, I was looking forward, as I said, to ask that question this evening, uh, even though I would have been fine if listeners uh, had asked as well. Uh, we had listeners who had suggestions about refining uh, this question or even adding to it, right, to get a, a line of questions going around this. Uh, so 
They said the question, the questioning of the white guest about who is most knowledgeable about racism disturbed me. I'm disturbed that white people say that non-white people are more knowledgeable about it. Lies are disturbing. So, yes, that's an appropriate feeling. However, almost all the studies are done by white researchers or white managed universities. I would like to make a suggestion about asking the white guest this question. My suggestion is to ask them first. Are you knowledgeable, knowledgeable about racism? Do you think your colleagues or the author of sources you use to prepare your paperwork book are knowledgeable about racism? What is the racial classification of the majority of your colleagues, the author of the sources? Then I would ask, who's more confused about racism? Non-white people? or white people now we'll have to try it to see if we get a different response from that way it's been so overwhelming over the years like because we've switched it we've asked who's more confused like we have a number where we did it that way and then they say oh white people are definitely more confused right oh yeah they're more confused <laughs> do it the other way who's more informed oh yeah non-white people are more informed oh yeah no 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 doubt about it yeah 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 mm-hmm. okay and we even Recently, some of our guests on the Buffalo issue asked them, like, hey, who did most of the studies? And I remember one of the folks, I think that was Dr. Neil Krause. He started off and he said, oh, well, the Urban League and they did this one. And that's, you know, lots of black people and blah, blah, blah. And and all of that. And then he got to the end and he said, oh, well, you know, most of the people are white people who've done the study. Yes. Yes. (laughs) And then we asked him, you sir are informed about racism white supremacy oh uh well oh uh i don't know you know i don't i'm, I'm no family lou hamer or anything like that like oh uh yes then we've had a bunch i think we even have some great sound clips of that as well so we can try it out and see but i think you will continue to be disturbed because i think white people are just going to continue to lie uh, again like i said years ago i did not grasp this is a really important lie for a number of reasons in terms of thinking white people are not dedicated to racism, white supremacy. They're just idiots. Black people, we're not confused about racism, white supremacy. We are geniuses on this problem and what it means to be white. I use that swimming metaphor again since I got the book title correct the second time around contested waters in my view it's so important for that the criminal aspect and all of it that oh we just gotta educate white people oh we just gotta inform them they just gotta get this book and then they'll eh, wrong even the cointel pro wrong white people are not ignorant about that that's never the position that I take that's just something that the same way with black counter violence Denmark Vesey and the like that is deliberately obfuscated that word again not ignorance but then the other aspect of it is we non-white people victims of racism if we constantly think we are experts I know everything there is to know about racism white supremacy hey you will not study you will not as retired firefighter said refine 
your questions, your understanding. I'm going to have to go and get this book. I'm going to go and have to get Dr. Kenneth O'Reilly's book because I don't know about Pro and the like. I don't know who Eric McGinnis is. If you think you're already an expert on racism, might not be as vested in all of that or checking out Dr. Francis Cresswellsing, that sort of thing. Anywho, we will wrap things up. I'm so disgusted. It's one of the warmest days of the year in Seattle, Washington. Like, let me get a live time temperature check. Okay, so it is 8.09 p.m. Pacific Daylight Saving Time, and it is 81 degrees still. The sun is still out and everything. I'm just saying, like, the temperature has been dropping for a few hours now, and it's still above 80 degrees. Like, I don't think there's any point this calendar year where it's been above 80 degrees which is 27 Celsius I don't think there's been any point this calendar year where it's been this warm after 8pm in the evening stunning I'm a little not quite precious nauseous but I'm a little bit nauseous that we had to be hanging out talking about black bodies found in the river on one of the most beautiful days of the year. I could have been hanging out and enjoying my time at the beach with my hammock. Reading about Eric McGinnis. Victim in New Jersey, did you have anything? Are we good for the broadcast? Um. Yes, yes, yes. I definitely just wanted to make a comment. Um. So moving forward, do you think that is, um, and we're, we're, we're dealing with guests that's dealing with um, the civil rights movement. Um, if they're not knowledgeable um, about COINTELPRO, I mean, can we just basically just assume that they they could be just practicing um, racism? Because, I mean, COINTELPRO, I mean, the operation that was done under COINTELPRO was, was similar operations that was done to overthrow dictators and nations, assassinations, um, destabilizing um, whole neighborhoods as they destabilize countries. You know, so if they're not aware of this, is it just safe to say that, okay, you're, you're here to practice racism? Uh, I, as I said, in my view, it's exactly the same as the 22 caliber killer uh, in Buffalo case and the scholars who write about and or teach at the University of Buffalo and write and, and talk, teach about racism in Buffalo. And they don't include that. You can either this is someone who is doing really slipshod, no count research. It's exact. Yep. I took that was this was because I said that about the same thing with the 22 caliber case. Like it took me a while to think like now, how much of an oversight is this? I even put a poll on my social media like so how important is this case? Because I think it's really important talking about the 22 caliber case. And so I asked and most of the other folks who have now found out about this have agreed. They think that this is pretty important. Most of them really important. Cointel like Jesus Christ, like in my view, it's not an F like, oh, man, if it's a white person and you especially you are like Ph.D. historian, you get access to all the documents and can go and hang out in the library after hours and get anything you want. Check out books for indefinite periods of time, get all the out of print material and everything else like ooh we 
I don't even think you get the benefit of the doubt. Like it, in my view, it's totally reasonable to think this person might be deliberately lying to us at min- I mean, at the minimum. Okay. So we got another incompetent, lazy, no count white expert, uh, who did no research and whatever else. But I mean, again, Pro is so central to any telling of the civil rights. we like any, that's why I said all of these people, it's not like, oh, maybe just one person off the, maybe Bob Moses had a file. No, all of these people had a file. Probably if you, they said it's in Kenneth O'Reilly. All you have to do is go to an NAACP and you don't even have to be a member. I just walked by. What are these niggers talking about? Oh, y'all are crazy. I'm out of here. Bam. Oh, <laughs> at the meeting, put his name down. We don't know what this nigger was up to. Might be one of these radical ones. That sort of where you end up losing a job. Like what? How'd I lose my job? What did I do? Mm. So, no, I'm of the opinion. There's no way any white person. They say they're a scholar. I'm a historian. I looked it off because he didn't say he didn't know Kenneth O'Reilly's book. He said he had it. That's why I said either you, I had it. You just look at that for context. He said he's had it. I don't remember when I looked at it. There's a whole chapter in Kenneth O'Reilly's book titled Mississippi Burning. That's not just the name of the movie or the reason that the chapter is the same title as the movie. That's the name of the flipping FBI file, which he knows. If you know all that, you know. How can you not know? Either you're super lame as a historian, you get an F. You're not an expert. You're just an incompetent, lazy white person. Or you're trying to fool us and I, like deliberately obfuscate, which is the pattern. That's the same thing I said with J. Uh, Russell Hawkins. Hey, when you write this book, and it was more so with him because he was writing over and over and over about J. Strom Thurmond and saying segregation. Hey, this guy is raping a black female. How do you not know that? Either you're a really ignorant historian or you're practicing racism and deceiving us. And the latter, that's been the pattern. We're not going to talk about Strom Thurmond raping. We're not going to talk about Pro. And dang, did J. Edgar Hoover and the FBI kill Dr. King? First, they got the settlement. They for sure participated in assassinating Fred Hampton, Mark Clark, Bunchy Carter. UCLA, that's not Chicago, but I mean, same thing, same campaign all over the country. Same campaign. Really, we just talked about Patrice Lumumba. Same period of time. That's just CIA, not FBI. But I mean, really, whatever. answer your question with detail yes say I just had to process a little bit more and, and think of, and that's what I was saying like hey this is a white man with a budget and a staff and editors nobody looked at this and said man we better at least get a word in about Cointel Pro we have done well over 2,000 programs at the cows Dr. Kenneth O'Reilly was a guest on this broadcast in 2009 not one of the first hundred programs that we matter of fact Dr. Kenneth O'Reilly was on the program in April he's one of the first 20 programs that we did Dr. Welsing said don't open your mouth not to talk about Mississippi burning and Freedom Summer she said don't open your mouth to talk about racism 
if you haven't read Kenneth O'Reilly's Racial Matters. He said he didn't remember it, had it in my hand. We had uh, Dr. O'Reilly on the program twice. He was one of our first 20 guests and Gus T. went back and reread the book to prepare for this program. Matter of fact, to wrap the lame cows, critics, and Gus is a no-count coon, worthless Negro from Virginia, and blah, 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 blah. To have a white guest, because that has happened repeatedly, a white guest suspected racist, even one where I had some critiques, like, where's the Cointel Pro information at? They end up saying, dang, he did read the book. We've had white people who wrote whole nasty critiques and the cows is lame and Gus is lame, the listeners are lame, and his mama is too. But, now he did read the book. Most of these folks we're going to do interviews with, they haven't even read the book. That's one. For all of the critics and lame folks, Gus, you don't know what he's talking about. You don't have to remember he has a history degree or any of that. Hey, he is literate. When we have guests on the program, I have done my homework. We're not just here rambling and talking crazy. In fact, any of you out there, when you see a guest coming on the program, one thing that you could do that I would encourage as opposed to any nonsense and craziness and, oh, man, let me warn them. Always having an author on the program, that coon does say reading is more important than watching television. How about read the book? Then you could be prepared for the author. See what they're going to talk about. That's what Dr. Welsing would encourage. Reading is more important than watching television. And I'm not surprised. I can say that on the way out. I'm so not surprised. That's so connected to what I just said. Uh, I'm so not surprised to hear that because we talk a good game that's not followed up. We will talk Dr. Welsing and Dr. Welsing and Dr. Welsing said all the time, reading is more important than watching television. We don't even read her book. You could be lazy. You don't even have to read all of her book and you would have seen racial matter. At least you would know the book. Oh yeah, Dr. Welsing said to check that out. I got that on my library. I haven't finished her book yet. I get to it sometime next year. We got some good Netflix watching, but I did read page one, Racial Matters. Got it on my shelf. Nah, I'm not saying all, but we, that is uncommon. Say Neely Fuller Jr. all day long, name calling, cursing, criticizing other black people, not suspicious of individuals classified as white. These are all things Mr. Fuller talks about. And then honorary white this, honorary white this talks about all of these things. Have you read his work? Nope, but I love Brother Fuller. Dr. Fuller, that's the one. I love me some Dr. Fuller. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I said, I just said that today. It's really it's at the point. It's not everybody, but it's widespread enough. When I see someone say, oh, yeah, I'm about Neely Fuller Jr. And I'm about that code. I am about code. Got to be on code. Got to be on code. And I love me some Dr. Wells and the grandson. Dr. Wells and Dr. Wells. We let me run the other direction. I expect everything but codification and black self-respect. I expect to be all kinds of coons. 
Anywho, Wednesday, black self-respect because we're breaking the rule, victim of racism. So hopefully we'll be on our best behavior. Gusty, most importantly, best behavior, super codified, no conflict. And like I said, I'm trying to learn. Do you know who Eric McGinnis is? What did your family tell you about this racially restricted region? We'll find out Wednesday, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. Much obliged for folks tuning in. Even did some overtime. Yee, way too much. Hopefully it was worthy of your time and energy. Uh, sobriety would be best for a myriad of reasons. If you're out and about, someone is being rowdy and hostile. Eric McGinnis. They called him a nigger. Kicked. Bam. Floating in the black body in the river. If you're in a vehicle, sober, buckled, not on your mobile device, we need all of our attention and we're doing the small things that we can to minimize contact with race soldiers, badge or no. All of that said, creator, we ask that you help us remain patient with other black people, victims of white supremacy. We ask that you help us remain patient with ourselves remind us to demonstrate the highest levels of black self-respect at all times in all places each and every time we are in contact with another black person it has been time replace white supremacy with justice immediately cow signing out Thanks all for tuning in. No name calling, no gossiping. Nigga, you so brainwashed. I'm a victim, Your brother. Problem. You're a victim. Right. I'm a up. victim of 400 years of conditioning. Shut up. The man has programmed my conditioning. Mm -hmm. Even my conditioning has been conditioned. <laughs>